Yeah. Welcome back to the Careless Talk Climbing Podcast with Sam Pro and Aidan Roberts. Hello. Uh, joining us, <laughs> yeah, Aidan's actually with me doing the intro. Uh, joining us this week, we've got um, Huffy. Uh, oh God, how do you pronounce his surname? His surname's not actually Huffy. No, 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 it's, it's that, that's why everyone calls him Huffy. It's a hard to pronounce. <laughs> <laughs> but you got to got to say his name, don't we? Um, Huffy. <laughs> just just Paul Huffy. Or should we just yeah. say Huffy? I reckon we say Huffy. I feel like uh yeah. I don't want to mess up his surname, but that's I think that's why everyone calls him Huffy. Okay. All right. Well joining us this week, we've got <laughs> we've got Huffy. Uh, Our good friend Paul Huffy. Paul Huffy, in yes. Quotation marks. <laughs> yeah. Huffy's in um, quotation marks because we don't want to offend him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You may have seen him. He's quite like, he puts a lot of his research on Instagram and he's the climbing physio. Um, and he's uh, based in the Southwest, um, kind of like uh, done a lot of climbing, kind of been present in the UK climbing um, and like bouldering development scene for years. Um, you'll find Boulder Problem is named after him around North Wales. It's where he grew up. Um, uh, yeah, he's a very accomplished physio. I get most of my physio questions answered by him. Um, he has been the physio of Shauna Coxie um, for her comp climbing um, over the last few years. So was present in the preparation for the Olympics and uh, often, uh, yeah, there at all the World Cups. So would uh, treat uh uk athletes and international athletes alike um so yeah a regular face in the climbing physiotherapy world and has a great mind for it uh, really like puzzles stuff out and like feels very invested in the process so um yeah awesome. i think it will be a really interesting discussion and hope it's enjoyable yeah i hope you enjoy it um and the other thing we want to do is we want to say a really big thank you to our esteemed patrons. Oh, yeah, the patrons. <laughs> yeah, 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 the patrons. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a small but esteemed group. So say thank a huge thank you to those guys that have uh, that have signed up. Um, and also yeah. to, to say we have a Patreon. Yeah, thank you um, for your support. Uh, so if you'd like to become a patron, um, please do yeah, consider having a look over on our Patreon page, which I will link underneath. In the uh, show notes. That's what podcasters link to say. Yeah, in the show notes. People <laughs> always say the show notes. I'm not entirely sure what they mean because like, is that just the description underneath the episodes? Because yeah, it's, it's yeah. not like a separate show notes section that I'm unaware of. I, I, th- I think it's just the description. But yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, yeah in that description, which may or may not be the show notes, will be a link to our Patreon page. And you can support us. And thanks to the current patrons who, patrons who, um, we announced the guest beforehand. And then it gives them the opportunity to, uh, construct their own questions for them. So thanks for writing in your questions as well. And, um, yeah, if you're interested in supporting us or having, a glimpse into future guests and questions you may like to ask. Check it out. I'm just about to jump in with a question that's off list straight off. Perfect. Um, yeah. But uh, Happy, how much of your um, physio sessions are with climbers, like as a percentage? That's a good question. Um, I'd say around about 
40% of the people that I see are climbers. It's been more so since the games definitely got busier mm. um, yeah. and get people traveling from quite a long way out. So I've kind of developed a new way of seeing those guys because the like, last thing I want is someone traveling from like the Midlands or Manchester um, and being sandwiched between in a busy clinic. So I always try and figure out where people are coming from to sort of allow for that. But yeah, I, I get the whole spectrum in the clinic, which is great. So yeah, like about 40% climbers, but then I could see anything from, well, like this week um, I've had a big wave surfer message me with a video of him um, wiping out on a big wave in the middle of the ocean and getting whiplash and then a shepherdess got butted on the side of her knee by a ram <laughs> so, those are like two good examples off the top of my head of people who've got in touch who need an appointment so it's everything and i like that i don't want to just see climbers um yeah oh that's yeah. interesting is that because you you'd rather see a, a broader range of things or because climbers are just exhausting to deal with <laughs> well, well climbers require a different approach to most people actually now you say that and and that's one thing that I've kind of learned over time is that um, they're a different kind of athlete to uh, a lot of other people who might be just a bit dismissive or sparse with their kind of like subjective, how they talk to about an injury. They're just so meticulous. And if you don't allow time for that in a session, you'll miss the problem because uh. they throw so, so much information at you. Some of it's really relevant. Some of it is totally irre- irrelevant and you need to allow more time for that. Whereas um, more general issues, people are less discerning as a rule I found than climbers. They, they require a different approach. And if you, can, if you know how to do that, your sessions will go really well because they'll tell you most of the problem. That yeah. Sense. Oh, that's interesting that they're mm. kind of almost more complex. Do you think like, do you think a lot of that stem, do you think it's the people maybe that makes it complex, mm. like, like, like the detail or do you think it's like the complexity of like movement within climbing that makes it so varied? Like, yeah, I think, I think that the second point there is, is one of the main reasons in a session, you'll do a million different ways of stressing the same joint. Whereas someone in a more conventional yeah. setting, like sitting, sitting down in office, they'll get headbutted by a ram. They'll yeah. have more, a more linear. Yeah. <laughs> if, you, if you go for a run, you have like a repetitive movement practice. So yeah, you can kind of like almost a... analyze like way away, like yeah, simplified yeah. system. Yeah, exactly. If you think about it in a really simple way, running's just a symmetrical sport, you know, and climbing's the total opposite. So there's loads more nuance to it. Yeah. You've got to kind of allow for that when you're, letting people talk to you about it yeah because that is yeah that was for me that felt like well it's going to be one of the challenges today in this discussion is partly like the vastness of like the complexity of discussing physiotherapy within climbing like in like if it was just like if we did have a specific movement maybe we're rowers or something like the movement on erg like a rowing machine like we have some like movement pattern we can address where it's like you can't really cover it all so much of it i guess becomes quite like problem solving uh yeah kind of uh but yeah no it make, makes sense so i am um, uh climbing clients can be a bit more difficult yeah <laughs> I, and that's it it's that you've just nailed it really it, it, on a ski egg it's kind of pretty preset so you can focus on specifics 
and um, be pretty sure you're dealing with something consistent. Whereas in climbing, if you focus on a specific, you're likely to miss the bigger picture. And that is where things are won and lost. It's not focusing on the specifics. It's stepping right back and um, listening really well, like I say. And, and that if you don't do that as your first thing with a climber, you'll, you, you'll, you've got more chance of missing the bigger picture. Um, so I tend to step right back, uh, zoom right out. Uh, and, and yeah, the more I do that, the more successful the session seem to be yeah yeah and the measure of success is that usually like a successful diagnosis or like certainty in your diagnosis of what it is or like no 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 the success is in telling someone they're not injured anymore that's the that's really the success oh, so the, yeah 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 that that's what i always try and get to for me that's like my finish line um and i guess we can go into that but the process of getting there um there's a few little nuances to it, i suppose yeah 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 because it's a very different thing i guess the initial diagnosis is like the uh, the first like it's almost like the puzzle or like your blank canvas and it's like really hard to discern what's gone on but then mm. it's like yeah you know it's quite an interesting way to, to define so i guess that like benefits from people seeing you more regularly as well like so you can like kind of uh prescribe rehab and uh kind of like almost support throughout the entire process um, yeah yeah i definitely like to operate in that sort of rehab early stage block that's where i'm most comfortable um and then i like to uh, i like to really coordinate with other people who specialize in you know taking that person from me saying you're no longer injured which is always a lovely time uh, and then like imparting what we've learned so that the future doesn't look like the past for that person or athlete. Um, if they don't work with a coach, if they're not professional athletes, you still see a lot of guys on the team. Um, then it's just teaching that person how this problem, why this problem started uh, and, and trying to like avoid that happening again. Uh, yeah. and, and that's, that's really important, you know, um, you can yeah. teach them how to be their own physio in the sun yeah <laughs> yes completely i've got so many different questions around this area but i feel like if we if i start asking them we're going to miss section one of our plan i did say that the the uh, structure would fall over quickly i didn't think it would fall over on the first question <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah we've gone straight down the list <laughs> yeah but let's, let's 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 double back and try and stick a little bit yeah 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 <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Javi, we yeah. want to talk a little bit about your own personal climbing background because I, I, I'm sure climbing came before physioing for you. Yeah, yeah go, go. What was what was your like? How did you get into it? What was the start for you? Oh, so yeah, I started, I guess, relatively early for when I was climbing. Not, not a lot of people were bouldering. It was probably 13 when I started climbing, and the Beacon. I don't know if you know the Beacon, North Wales. Yeah, you know? yeah, I know. Yeah, mm, yeah, yeah. yeah. Old school so that, classic. Old school, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that that was up and running. And um my mum used to take me there and then she would she would leave me there and I would basically not know what to do. So I would traverse for an hour and then I'd step <laughs> off. <laughs> I'd step off and rest. And then I'd do that three times and then my mum would pick me up again. Wow! <laughs> <laughs> I, I had no idea what I was doing, and no one else was doing that either. 
but no one was bouldering. So, yeah, um, I was probably the fittest. Ironically, that was the fittest that I've been. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So this is how to build some foundations of <laughs> yeah. an hour, an hour mm. on wall. Yeah, yeah. I just like stand in the corner and like suffer for like ten minutes whilst arrested, and then do the same thing, and then stand in the corner and suffer. Um, wow. Yeah. And then I noticed other people bouldering and doing it a bit differently. So I started copying them. And you yeah. realized it can be uh, more, <laughs> more than just suffering. <laughs> a, li- a little bit less strange than strange. Yeah. But still quite strange. Yeah. Did you enjoy it from the get go? Yeah. Even yeah, that? I loved it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I even loved that. Yeah. I loved that. I guess that shows you how much it kind of like resonated with me that I was willing to do that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. If you're willing to traverse for three hours and have a good time, then climbing's only going to get better. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like it takes people years to like subject themselves to like training plans, like enduring austerity in that sense. And you were doing it from yeah. day one. <laughs> yeah, way lazier now, though. I'd know where to do that now. <laughs> But you, you yeah. transferred to outdoor bouldering then at some point pretty keenly. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I first started cycling outdoors. So I start, basically, I started noticing that there were people, like, doing things that made more sense. Like, um, like Neil Dyer, he was bouldering a lot, and mm-hmm. Matt Katz was bouldering there as well. And I just remember watching them and thinking, oh, my God, they're really good and really strong. And, yeah, and then I noticed that they were doing things outside, so I got a bike and started cycling to the pass and stuff. And again, that was like a stupid feat of endurance. That was like 20 miles uh, round trip to, 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 to boulder on the Cromwell <laughs> with, no, with no crash map. It's just absolutely stupid. Were you just traversing around the bottom of the boulders? <laughs> There's a lot of traverses in the Cromwell. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> not enough resting but uh, and then yeah and then like i met someone at school and he got a, a ford car and we thought we were really like amazing and that's where we would like drive to the to look for new boulders and that's really where it started to get make a little more sense i suppose yeah wow. that's where it got interesting yeah yeah i kind of like uh actually um because I worked with you for a few years before I actually realized that you had North Wales roots. Um, and it was ah, okay. only when I started, I only when I started bouldering more in North Wales and there's like loads of boulders named Huffy. Yeah. <laughs> Huffy's a rat. And <laughs> yeah. That sounds quite egotistical, doesn't it? Like there's, there's lots of names, things with my name in it, but like I didn't um, name half of those. It's just that I think they knew I did it. Um, but it was before it, yeah. you kind of gave it a name. <laughs> No, well, I I kind of it's quite funny because um, there are quite a few of those like uh like Ned there's like Ned Wall and like kind of like a bunch of like it's quite an easy name Jim has got some problems after him Dan yeah. Wall as well yeah like, it works but it, it kind of needs like the little catchy short names like I mean Sam would probably work but Aiden definitely wouldn't <laughs> sounds, <laughs> sounds way too human <laughs> Aiden's Wall. <laughs> yeah you're right some of them have got like like jerry's problem i guess that that was probably where it came from jerry's problem was like some mm. everyone wanted to do a jerry's problem and sean's yeah, problem yeah. remember that in the peak you know it's a few sean's problems that have got like yeah. a lot of um yeah like everyone wants to do them yeah 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 it's quite nice it's almost like a little um reminder of like the time when like climbing 
yeah. it's not even media. Like climbing news was spread through like whispers and word of mouth, and they'd be like, "I heard they did that." Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, their problem. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But half of those are just idea. yeah, they're just like half of those just unnamed, unnamed. So, but someone went, "Oh, I've done it," so it's been named that, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. a shame yeah. if you had a, like a really good name in mind. <laughs> yeah. And then you look at the guidebook and everything's just Huffy's wall, Huffy's, <laughs> Huffy's around. Huffy's got no imagination. <laughs> yeah, you can get a literally a pretty good uh, good idea of what you're walking up to, though, if you've got yeah. Huffy's yeah. a rat or Huffy's slab. Yeah. <laughs> but did you study physiotherapy with climbing in mind or was it um, more, uh, yeah, like was it as... Did you know that you'd be treating climbers at that point? No, no, no. I, I, I literally, I climbed and um, I didn't know what to do. So I did a degree before physio, which was in zoology. So yeah, um, I just didn't know whether to be a physio or to be a teacher. I couldn't figure out which of the two and physio came first and managed to get a, a place. And, and that was that really. Oh, wow. Okay. Mm. Yeah. So you kind of almost approached it at the anatomical point of view uh yeah. like perspective um yeah. exactly yeah i had a, a, an interest in anatomy i suppose and i climbed and i saw a few good physios who definitely made a difference to me they seemed to know what they were doing and i like that and i suppose that must have stuck with me because yeah i'm still doing it so yeah yeah yeah, yeah it's often in the way isn't it you, you meet people along the way and you, you're impressed by them and yeah it becomes something you want to do more of yeah yeah I think it's kind of helpful. I've always found it when I've had physio from you as well, I've always found it quite helpful to like have someone like who really gets like the, like the niche of like a hard climbing, like lifestyle or like as in like, yeah. Uh, to some people you kind of mm-hmm. like, you'd kind of think like, Oh, well you've got like a pulley strain in your pinky it literally doesn't matter at all but you can be somebody like yeah. right pulling on small holes like this climbing yeah. gig it's important like uh, that you know and can like kind of relate to like the value it plays in someone's life you might be like oh right yeah like, actually yeah. you can like kind of yeah this without, is important without that kind of like knowledge and appreciation the answer to so many of these things is just stop climbing you know, well, yeah. don't, don't oh, climb yeah. anymore That's for a right. while. And then, you know, maybe in six weeks you'll feel better. And like, you can't always have that just coming at you for, if you're like a elite level or just a really, no, it doesn't matter how good you are, just if you're a really passionate climber. Yeah. But particularly in elite, because it's cutthroat at that end. So what you said there yeah. sounds really true. You realize at that end, if you say stop, the athlete will just, yeah, lose confidence in you and you'll, you'll probably not be around for too long. Um, and I've, de- and I've definitely realized over time that, well, nowadays I rarely tell anyone to stop doing anything because I think the more you understand the problem, the more you realize there's like levels to it and there's always a way through it. And if you truly understand it, there's, you can you can keep moving forwards unless it's a catastrophic injury, in which case there's no question. It's obvious to the athlete and the physio. But um, yeah, I rarely say stop climbing to anyone. It must be really helpful to know the person you work with, um, to like know what would work well for them. And, yeah, uh, yeah, you get better and more efficient in a short space of time. But yeah, I guess is like in a very short space of time, getting to know that person, and that's what goes back to what I said initially, just listening properly. 
um, and getting to understand that person. So, you know, not inserting yourself into the story or having any kind of fixed state of mind of, you know, right, on paper, this looks like a pulley, so we're just going to end up doing this. It's none of that. If to start totally blank, make yourself vulnerable, listen really well, and like literally take everyone, it's, you know, case by case. And it, it, that's why I say it normally works if you, if you kind of keep an open mind and step right back, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Try and listen to everything and get, a, yeah, gain a judge of the issue and the character. Yeah. Yeah. Because there's physical and mental things that'll be driving an injury. Um, and, and, and that it can get quite complicated um, because the two kind of mix together, especially something that's been there for ages. And yeah. who's put the time in and been a wise person and tried to like diligently follow what they've been told but not get the outcome that they're looking for. That that I actually really enjoy those cases because um I, I you know, in a chronic problem, I refuse, always refuse to believe that you can't sort it. It just needs the right approach. And uh, often it's a bit easier because you can listen to what they've done in the past and you know, move those things out of the way and you move forward. So yeah, there's a nice challenge to those problems. I do enjoy those ones. Yeah, those are that um like is it called psychoschematic? Like the pain that people can get like when there's yeah. actually no tissue damage, like cases yeah. like that. I've like yeah, listened to some things about like people talking about those for yeah. like, um allodynia, isn't it? Is the um Yeah. Hey, good knowledge. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Maybe new research, then. <laughs> <laughs> well, I should, I should say, I've, I've got a physio degree as well. Um, ah, I didn't know that. <laughs> what? <laughs> I didn't know this. <laughs> no, I don't feel so bad about not knowing it now. <laughs> That's an amazing thing to not know about him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I'm not. I'm, I'm no longer a physiotherapist, but I, I do have a physio degree. Oh, I want to interview you now. Oh, wow. Yeah. Now I feel like I should just be sitting on the sidelines. <laughs> well, it's funny because it was actually, I was really interested to hear about what you were saying there about like whether or not you wanted to go into climbing physiotherapy because I knew I actively wanted to avoid working with climbers too much. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah. Because I feel like they're, so, they're such a difficult client base. Mm. Um, uh, huh. and, and so, yeah, I never, I never really wanted to go into it. Um, but then you kind of having a physiotherapy degree and surrounding yourself with climbers you kind of end up falling into it a little bit because people will relentlessly ask you and you feel like oh, i should probably try and figure out the answer to some of these questions <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> yeah um but yeah because i i don't I, I think maybe it's a bit different now climbers are getting a bit more professional but but back then um you know, i always felt like climbers would just not listen anyway and just <laughs> carry on <laughs> carry on climbing and i'd just be wasting my breath <laughs> yeah and there are those people that you get and, and do you know what the honest truth is they're not really injured they've got they've got something that isn't significant enough to hold them back the people who are really injured are the ones who will come and listen because they don't have any other option uh, and then that's the right time to find um someone who perhaps wouldn't normally listen you get other people who are a bit more hyper vigilant and they want to nip something in the bud and, and they're much easier to work with but yeah, there's you know degrees of need from athletes or climbers or, or just injured people, and if the, the need is quite low, they tend to not really listen. In, in which case, you know, you, you reconcile it that the injury wasn't that great in the first place, really. Yeah. Okay. Do you see maybe more of that now? You mentioned that you, you've gotten way busier since the games, Olympic games. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Cl definitely. 
climbing just in general is getting so much more uh i won't say mainstream but it's becoming mm, more popular well, mainstream's the word i think yeah yeah but um and then obviously like a lot of people being introduced to it like uh, uh kind of maybe from or like there's a lot of like people like it's really popular in london you're not even based too far from london easy to get there i guess no and no. like um it's like in the past i imagine i imagine it's quite hard like traditionally quite hard to get like you think of your stereotypical old school climber probably quite hard to get them to stump up some cash to get some physiotherapy sessions whereas yeah, like, yeah. probably probably a bit more affordable uh these days for lots of people anyway. yeah um, yeah yeah you Definitely probably get a diff- different clientele base now yeah um, and it took me a little while to get my head around that because again you know i was a dirtbag and i would used to travel around the world climbing and meet lots of other really interesting weirdos because that's what climbing is for though mm-hmm. and and now you get these people coming in and you know of course the treatment can be expensive or scan can be expensive this sort of thing but you find out they're like an md of like you know a multinational company and but they're a climber and you way back i wasn't used to meeting those sort of people in climbing but like you say sam it's just opened up and it is totally mainstream now there's no doubt about it mm. yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, your role changes a little from, bit as well. In that from from like a physiotherapist point of view, it is purely, I would have thought, correct me if I'm wrong, but I would have thought it's purely a good thing because the more people doing it, the more research, the more science that, you know, there's more like actual literature to rely on rather than a little bit of kind of, um, well, anecdotal evidence, I suppose. Yeah, it's interesting. A lot of the research that's out there um, besides the obvious climbing specific stuff like a pulley injury that you know shuffle kind of put that classification out there a long time ago and people have kind of worked around that for a long time but most of the other research is, is sort of extrapolated from lower limb um uh, injuries and that issues so like most of the tendon stuff you'll read about is basically from an achilles tendon uh, of a runner you know it's, it's knowledge based on that so we are still like nicking evidence from other sports and bringing it over and and there is there's a use to that, but there is also you know a need to be a little bit kind of questioning about some bit at least. Um, mm. But yeah, I think I think it's still in its infancy. Yeah. Really, climbing specific research has still got a long way to go. Yeah, I, I think yeah. climbing's so radically different from basically anything else. Yeah, because um, like climbing, it's got such a there's such a reliance on tendons and passive structures. Um, yeah, whereas most other sports have got a lot more of a muscle base so i always think that's why like climbers carry on performing to a really high level you know you've got climbers in yeah. the 50 doing so well and you don't really see that in other sports that rely more heavily on just pure muscle power hmm. yeah and also you can, you can move around stuff so you can just do what you're good at not being forced to at the, you know, the mercy of an opponent who's doing something random that you have to react to, uh, you know, mm. you can just change the goalposts around, you know, what you're good at and yeah. Keep climbing for a long time. Yeah. 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 
there's nothing stopping Aiden chiseling crimps into rocks for the for the rest of his yeah life. yeah I know <laughs> yeah you won't see me doing that <laughs> <laughs> know what accusations you're throwing on there Sam <laughs> sorry you get, you get all the forums running wild <laughs> I'll, I'll be I hearing from your lawyer I can just see now with these like well, in the ossified night. fingers that are like you know frozen in a high angle you've got these like yeah. little claws that you're just climbing <laughs> yeah. on like ice axes it's like <laughs> like like sky hooks yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah once my joints have fused i'll just be like <laughs> yeah that's that's when you'll hit your max level your final form <laughs> you say that though there's yeah, a couple yeah. of um, just hanging on my fingernails well there's some well-known climbers out there who've had their fingers fused in um in a half print position uh, much against the advice of um, really of, yeah of surgeons they're like no you don't want to do that you want it just like you know slightly bent though well if it's slightly bent i won't be able to like, use it so that it's fused in a kind of half crimp so they can actually just like yeah they right. literally just want bone no tendon uh, will actually yield because the bone's fused good god i've not heard of that yeah that's that, mad wow yeah okay yeah is there any risk with like well the, well. when you have like when you have like bone on bone is there any risk of like breaking that yeah like you put quite a lot of force through like you don't thought yeah I mean, no. surely it could be quite strong. Yeah, yeah, very strong. I'm not trying to give anyone a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> next next uh, podcast, Aiden's just going to be clawed. Like, that's, that's like another fantastic example of, like... Trying to type. <laughs> just how weird climbers are, because, like, yeah. you're, you're willing to... You know, if you do that to your hand, you can't shake someone's hand ever again. You know, like, there's, no. there's so Imagine many... Imagine how much you catch it. <laughs> Yeah, imagine how much they catch it on things. It's like everyday know. things would be an absolute nightmare. I mean, it'd be great for oh. you. Your typing would be about the same though, Aiden. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, one finger. <laughs> one finger <laughs> bent, bent actually, in yeah. finger. So, so maybe, maybe it would work for you. But for most people, that would be such a nightmare. But because it feels to them better for climbing, it's like, no, definitely. Fuse it in half crimp, please. <laughs> <laughs> yeah well that's the thing you know it's like yeah, an obsessive wow. sport and you just love it that much there's a there's a guy who's got the one finger one arm press up um world record and he's called mick the finger and he basically <laughs> does his one he does his one finger one arm press ups on, on his index yeah. finger and he's broken it that many times it's just like a massive stump and he, he's really psyched about that because it doesn't move much so he's got more chance of breaking world records you know Oh my god! Uh, yeah. Wow! Yeah. I, I wonder if he was called Mick the Finger before he got into one arm. <laughs> it just happened to be a pre-existing coincidence. And then, yeah, that's just that was my name already. Yeah, <laughs> makes, makes climbing like makes climbing feel like remarkably interesting. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Imagine if that was what we were trying to do a podcast about, just one finger push-ups. Well, yeah, the problem with Mick is that if he did injure his finger, I'd have nothing to do to help him. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that, that specific. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You, you do just have to stop at that point, don't you? Yeah, yeah. So you know you've gone too far. I'm, I'm going to use that that injury thing to uh, segue awkwardly into trying to maintain some kind of structure are we um, talking about warm-up 
You were going to talk about warm-ups, yeah. I actually have. I actually oh, have. Yeah. I didn't put a question on this, but it's actually a question which mm. I actually really want to know the answer to is, okay, so mm. for me personally and how I spectate people, um, it takes me a really long time to warm up my fingers because not necessarily even from an injury perspective, um, because when I like pull up and my fingers aren't warmed up, they feel incredibly weak or like, I don't feel like I can try very hard. Maybe it is me, like my mind, like trying to inhibit me pulling too hard from the get go. But some people, for example, Will Bosey, who I've been on this trip with, um, maybe he's a quick, Tim Blake is a good example. Um, I've climbed with him quite a bit and he just like chalks up when he like gets there and can pull on tiny crimps and like Will maybe even mm. more so. Um, and Part of me like thinks, oh, well, it's good. Now I warm up thoroughly anyway. It's probably quite good for me. But like, I just don't feel like I could ever pull on holds like that without warming my fingers up. Is it like actually like a physical thing that like basically the analogy that I thought is monkeys who are way better in climbers than will ever be. They don't seem to warm up at all. They just seem to just like, I don't know, roll out of bed, <laughs> swing around. <laughs> it's no problem. Yeah. But, uh, is it like a physical thing that we do to warm up? Like, like beyond just like injury risk or like, um, well, not, not just hearing this question and now, and um, thinking about how you climb, when you climb, the, the dots are really connected. So you'll engage on a hold. And when you hit a hold, everything is really well connected. So, uh, other, other climbers who perhaps climb uh, on similar blocks to you who might not be as well connected or climb from their fingers and allow their body to float around and everything else that is a different level of engagement to the way that you need to climb to keep the dots connected so it may well be that you are just really trying to your brain's just like firing up on a neuromuscular level oh, like a co coordination levels. thing almost yeah yeah whereas a lot of other climbers they climb quite light and they look like they're in a bit of a breeze, but their fingers are locked onto stuff. That's a very different way, perhaps, of climbing. You climb more from their fingers. Everyone, you're known for having strong fingers, but when I watch you climb, I, I see that your shoulders are working really hard and your, your, your foot's well connected to that hole and nothing much moves when you get through these movements, whereas it's perhaps a bit more sag or a bounce in other climbers when they climb. So... I imagine oh, you've got more to coordinate potentially, but that's that's just a guess. Is it a bit of a misconception that warm-ups are for injury prevention? Yeah, that's a good question. It, yeah, because it, it can be a bit of a hot topic warm-up. Some people say that it doesn't reduce your injury risk, but just purely on an observational level as a uh, like a one-on-one -on -one practitioner, the number of people who start a, a sentence who come to see me, I hadn't warmed up properly, and then and they'll talk to you about the injury happening. That's a very common thing um, to hear. Um, but I also think you know people don't warm up with the priorities, right? Sometimes I suppose and people will be laughing at me at this because I don't really warm up. So um, <laughs> I just get on a board and start pulling. <laughs> So uh, I, but I've always done that. So my body's really used to a board and I'll keep the feet really big and I'll move quite slowly between the holds. And then over time, 
I'll start reducing the foothold size and start dead pointing and, and, and catching. And I think, you know, if you look at other sports, the way they warm up, they, that neuromuscular strength for response time is the key bit for me. I think that is important in a warm up. So that muscles are ready to engage quickly. And I think that gets missed on a lot of warm ups. Um, but, you know, I've been lucky to lecture with a lot of different professionals. And one of them's the, the physician for the PGA Tour. I always like, I quiz them on them, you know, what they do to warm up the guys. And, you know, the guys that are out in their Sunday best, you know, ironed whites and everything else, but they're mm. deadlifting really heavy weights in the back before they go out. That's just to fire up their neuromuscular system, get really switched on. So when they are moving, they've got, you know, their brain's firing quickly and all the muscles are ready to go. Um, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's quite an interesting thing. Yeah. I guess, like, the point you spoke about earlier, about, like, just a, just recently about, like, um, talking about being connected and things as well, like, I'm sure, like, all climbers have that to a certain degree. Mm. And perhaps if, like, when they say, oh, I haven't warmed up properly, it's, like, they almost don't have that like whole body connection to like they're almost like mm. the little errors that they make with that like are then like shock loaded or like they're then uh focused on their like their point of contact which is usually their fingers so that's maybe where you get like the yeah. and like yeah no that makes sense yeah and fingers are often like a cry for help i've done a recent post on instagram but you know um your tendons or your pulleys, sorry, they're very, very stiff um, when you climb, but over a session, they'll become more compliant. So they'll start actually stretching a bit more uh, as the session goes through. And I, I can see uh, A2 pulleys bowstringing to the same degree as a complete rupture after a, a long root session. So um, that, that kind of compliance, that movement in tissue as you climb more, sees you know that area becoming less vulnerable to... Um, to suddenly going on a cold snap, say, if you suddenly pull on with no other bits of your body warm, it's a mm. quite a vulnerable area that kind of warms into the climb. Um, yeah. yeah. Wow. So, Is that part um, of like the, beyond just muscular fatigue, would that play into, you know, when you've had a long session, you never feel as strong? Uh, mm. I guess like with like flex, uh, flexibility within the pulley, it's harder to generate force for it. Is that right? That makes sense. Yeah, yeah, so there'll be less. Yeah. yeah, there'll be less friction in that unit. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. So that plays into it, perhaps, alongside muscular yeah. fatigue. But, you know, Sam, you asked about injury, but there, there is in other sports that are more organised than climbing. There's definitely evidence that a good warm-up produces injury rates. Like footballers, there's like a FIFA program, and they've got like um, really good numbers on, um, yeah, injury rates reducing quite significantly. Uh, something like 30 to 40 percent less injury and 50 percent less severe injuries with this you know specific warm-up so right. i think it's just harder to do that for climbing mm. and, and with all that kind of information in mind uh is it possible to have a kind of like recommendation for what people should do because obviously you've kind of suggested you're not you're not very good yeah. personally for warming up and i am also no. renowned for not being good at warming up but like in theory uh, is it possible to suggest sort of things that people should consider doing for warm up? Because this is a Patreon question. Uh, yeah. So um, there's there's areas that are good areas to work on, and then they're probably not what you would expect. But one is like your DIP, the end of your finger. 
I find that a lot of climbers don't have much mobility in that. It tends to be really stiff. And you see up to like 50% loss of that flexion in that joint. Um, I'm not really sure why that is, whether it's because a, a lot of people crimp and not many people tend to drag or open hand. But if you think about it, that tendon goes to the end of your finger. And if you're doing a high angle crimp or you're open handing and that joint is stiff, then that flexor tendon has to work against that joint stiffness. So I, I actually like people to try and mobilize the end of that joint and get it more bendy so that they can actually access that tendon. Oh, wow. That makes sense. Oh, that's an interesting yeah. idea. I've never yeah, that and before. It's, it's a non-contractile structure, so it just sits there in the background. And if you don't get it moving, you, you, you'll never be able to access that flexor tendon. It won't make any difference to your crimp strength because you're going to fall into extension anyway. But yeah, that is something that I think is a really obvious low-hanging fruit to work on. Mm. Oh, wow. That's a really interesting yeah. idea. And would yeah. you recommend like dynamic stretching then at the start to uh, oh, you, session? Oh, you mean as a general rule? Yeah, definitely. So if you look at people like when Shauna was climbing, she would always um, do like big dinos between good holds. And, and there she's just automatically working on that rate of force development, like shocking a system, firing a neuromuscular system up. And I think dynamic type climbing, I think, is really important. Um, more, more so than than dynamic movements off the wall, I'd say. Mm. Okay, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I guess you like usually challenge like a little bit. You get a little bit more specificity, like when you're like doing, I don't know, jumping jacks or whatever. Yeah. You, you don't end up like switching the focus from like an isometric in your hands on the start holds, like, exploding out your legs and then engaging your hands. Like there's like a lot more going on, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. And it's what you know, it's called the emergency response. Um, so basically, it's like making your body catch a weight slowly, release eccentrically, um, and that's shown to improve your reaction time significantly. Um, and with climbing, it's really hard to do that off the wall. Um, but I think it's really important. That, so a lot of your warm up, I think, being on the wall and climbing really specifically to capture that is important. You get that from like a, a dyno, um, you know, or a dead point or something like that. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Oh, that's good mm. um, one of the things we we're going to ask because I've read a little bit about um, hypermobility uh, or oh, yeah. some, uh, a bit about like or just on some posts that I'd seen you do about like uh, people who are like hypermobile and like more susceptible to injury but um, is there like yeah. a, is there like a quite a strong correlation between that because like that hypermobility isn't always like obvious to people like there were some people who are like they can like touch the nails to their forearm or something like by yeah, their yeah, arms yeah. backwards and you're like oh well they're like clearly hypermobile but uh are there like yeah. stru- strong correlations between people like who have some forms of hypermobility and like how prone they are to injury yeah yeah so like with the hypermobile people it comes more from that like the non-contractile structures so like the stuff you can't control ligaments and connective tissue that's um, the sort of stuff that becomes quite vulnerable if the muscle fails. So, yeah, if your muscle's not EQ'd in and you fall onto your connective tissue and it's a bit stretchier, you generally tend to see more kind of issues around there. Like shoulders and fingers are two areas I see a little more correlation with uh, injuries and, and hypermobility. Um, and it's usually because that reaction time and strength isn't there in the stabilizers and the joint just gets a bit more exposed. 
So, but there's nothing you can for one with hypermobility. I guess having stronger muscles makes them less likely to fail. But the actual hypermobility of the like that's like untreated. Is that just like a is yeah. it untreatable or? Yeah, you can't, you can't really change the makeup of your connective tissue, um, yeah. like the, the, lig- the ligaments and things like that. You can make them stronger with stress over time, but essentially you'll always have this collagen elastin kind of ratio that makes you a little more bendy. Um, and there's benefits to that. A lot of really good athletes are really bendy and, they, you know, hypermobile as well. It's not like you're cursed, but there are certain trends. I see things like TFCCs. I see more TFCCs in people who are hypermobile. Um, and I see little tweaks to certain tendons um, in climbers on fingerboards if they're hypermobile as well. Um, but yeah, yeah, but that's the sort of specifics I see with hypermobility. I just wondered what like uh, some classic um, examples of hyper, like what indicate hypermobility. <laughs> the reason I ask is because oh, yeah. I um, yeah. I also injured my TFCC or struggled with injuries on my TFCC. And I don't know if flexibility and hypermobility yeah. are aligned, but like I've always had like weirdly flexible shoulders. Oh, and stuff. Yeah. Hypermobility is a connective tissue. Yeah. And um, so that's this is two different things because actually hypermobility yeah. is part of a, a number of other conditions are actually considered connective tissue disorders. That's right. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. But but I think to answer your question, you uh, bringing out my old knowledge here. There's like a seven point scale for hypermobility. That's not old though. You, yeah, I've yeah. still got, I've still got it. Uh, which is um, it's I think yeah. a point for your elbows going past neutral each That's side, right. and, and a point for your knees going past neutral each side, and then there's there's one with your wrists, and then and then being able to put your whole palm on the floor when you touch your toes is a point as well, I think. Yeah, and that's right. So it's a it's a it's a nine point scale. So you're oh, it's nine. I've I'm too yeah. old. <laughs> None of us have changed in the last few years. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's called the the Baton score. So the Baton score looks like a nine point thing, and if you score over five, you, you can technically hypermobile. The interesting thing there with climbers is that you only need to score for me two points, which is or four points, which is your pinky bending back to 90 and your thumb touching your wrist. And if you've got that on both sides, then for me, it doesn't really matter how hypermobile the rest of your body is. If you're dealing with a hand or wrist issue, it's a hypermobility issue. Um, but the thing that makes it more of a clinical problem is someone who's hypermobile going on to get other problems like IBS, problems around their heart, this sort of elostanus. That's where it becomes more clinical. But um, mm. hypermobility on its own, it, it's it's a consideration, but it, it doesn't mean it's not a huge correlation. But I do see a pattern in certain injuries. Mm. Um, the TFCC is one of them. When someone just opens the hand up into more of an open hand position, their extensors and flexors disengage a little, and you fall onto that connective mm. tissue. Um, yeah, so that's one good example: the muscles kind of failing and the, the ligaments um, not having the capacity to take that tension passively. But, you know, like flexibility, it, it, it's good to be flexible. But if you're flexible and weak, you're more likely to get injured than someone who's, um, you know, inflexible and strong. Yeah. Yeah. But the, the that, value of you know, stretch. I think that's another valuable like yeah. misconception that people don't think of. Like so I, you hear people saying about trying to, be, uh, trying to improve their flexibility to reduce the injury risk. Uh, and that's not necessarily yeah. going to be going to be what's going to happen. Stretching isn't necessarily good for, I guess, is it at all for recovery more than risk of injury? 
Yeah, I mean, if you're fle- if you train to be really flexible and you put your your heel really high by your head, you've done nothing to build up the muscle in that area. You're much more likely to get injured. Um, I think Ned's a good example of that. I think in his book, he's got him sticking his head between his legs with his knees straight. <laughs> in time, I've, I've worked with Ned and, you know, I've done force, force gauge testing on his hammies. He's got over 50 kilos of hamstring strength uh, in the middle range per leg. So that's like massive wow. amount of his body weight in the heel, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so he can put his heel wherever he wants, but he can use it to take more than half his body weight um, and pull really meaningfully with it. Yeah. So he's like flexible and strong and yeah, that's kind of that's one of his strengths that people I think don't realize how important it is to have strong hamstrings in climbing. Um, yeah, yeah. And being I, flexible is just a bonus. Yeah, yeah. I mean, not using heels, but I've no, noticed such a big difference with uh, hamstring strength um, in the way mm. I climb as well. But not with the but mm. more like towing down and like pulling away from the wall with my legs. As yeah, to the yeah, heels exactly. that, um, the heels which Ned uses, but uh, I think often with your toes as well, you end up with like your you have an extra joint. Your ankle, I guess, is more likely to be the point of failure mm. than the hamstring. But yeah, Ned especially like your weight weight is a good example for the amount of weight you can put through a heel with strong enough hamstrings. But yeah, because Ned yeah. does a lot of flexibility work, doesn't he? He stretches a lot. He, he does. Yeah, he does. He, his hips are flexible. His spine's really mobile. And like going back to your question, Sam, about like good areas to warm up the thoracic spine, the mid back. If you ever like with Ned, get him to show you his his cat cow movement. It's ridiculous. He moves like he moves twice as much as other people in his mid back. But that's wow. really good because when you lift your arm overhead, like the last ten degrees of your arm going overhead comes from your mid back being able to extend. Um, yeah, before you put really your good... shoulder in an awkward position, kind of thing. Yeah, otherwise you over rotate. There's, there's good research or good like um, case studies like, like Serena Williams. She had a problem with her shoulder for a long time, and someone looked at the thoracic spine. It really helped with the shoulder, but before that, everyone had just been looking at that cuff and focused too much on that. And a similar thing is like hips. You know, to have a good heel hook, you need really flexible hips. And when you're climbing, I think a really good thing for a warm is to get those hips really flexible. Because if you're holding on to something and your hips aren't mobile, your bum sticks out a bit, you're suddenly loading your fingers twice as much. But if you can get closer to the wall, your fingers are going to be taking half the load. And that's something that seems super important now, more so than ever with all these comp problems, getting your hips really flexible and strong. Mm. Yeah, so yeah. I think that's that's the key like soundbite takeaway there, isn't it? So like anything that you're, if you're working on flexibility for an area, you should also be strengthening. So doing them yeah. both together. Yeah, ideally at the same time. So what what would you say, are there any kind of um, traits that are more prevalent in climbers uh, that make them uh, more capable of avoiding injury? Um, yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so I think it's a climber who's had an injury before is infinitely wiser. Um, or a handful. You know, if they know what it feels like. Oh, what? Oh, handsome. Oh, no, or a handful. <laughs> oh, I thought I thought you were talking about your, yourself there. Yeah, <laughs> 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 making it about you again. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> no. Well, I was coming on that was uh, yeah. It's, how, it's one of the how long it can take some people to learn. <laughs> it can take many injuries before yeah, they yeah, get yeah. wise. <laughs> yeah, 
I think I, it's an important question. I always ask it in my sort of initial questioning is, have you had a significant injury that's kept you off for more than four weeks? And then, and then if they start chatting about that, I just let them chat and let them. And in that, I get to hear, one, how they managed it, and two, what they've learned from it moving forwards. It gives me a better idea of how likely they are to kind of, you know, take this session seriously so that the thing that annoyed you, Sam, that made you kind of walk away a little bit doesn't happen. So that's really important to be thinking about that from the, the very moment they walk in, really, you know, figuring that person out. Um, yeah, and it also like gives me an idea if they've got good instincts as well. You know, what are their instincts like? Is this someone who is going to be like a 50-50 player in this relationship or is it someone who is going to need a, a little more of a kind of top down and they're going to listen to to me if I say this? Or are they just not going to listen at all? Um, so yeah, just just working that person out, I think, is a, a nice part of the process for me. I enjoy that. Um, yeah, and if they're consistent and disciplined, then generally they're going to do all right with the injury. Um, the other side of it is that that mental side of it. Do they have an ego? You know, um, it is it, climbing defining them because that will get in the way of them getting better. Um, and then beyond that, like even more deeper into that is, um, is climbing a, a crutch for them, you know, because of a mental health issue. That's where it gets even more difficult. And that's where your nuts and bolts and your force gauge testing and scanning becomes less and less relevant. And, and actually just understanding that person in that first 10, 15 minutes and letting that dictate the way you go, you'll get a much better outcome. Um, mm. just appreciating what's at the heart of that driving that injury you know yeah 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 and the role yeah i think you make an interesting point on the role that climbing plays in that person's life as well and mm. of like how you want them to feel coming away from physio as well like or like about when reflecting on an injury like yeah like you say if their well-being is maybe very much associated with their performance then like yeah yeah, I mean, like, it's very easy to, uh, especially if you have professional athletes, injuries oh, yeah. to, take, to take you into quite a dark place. It's quite mm. easily done. Yeah, and it's it's how you respond in that first, the tone you set there is really important. So I see it a lot with runners. You know, running's, like, really good for your mental health. There's, like, good research out there. It's as effective as antidepressants, um, for, you know, controlling anxiety and mood. And so when a runner gets an injury, they they literally press the nuke button unless you really control the situation. They, they know it's a bad idea, but their mental health comes first. So they will run regardless and um, they'll run and, and press that nuke button, which they knew would be a bad idea just because they want that hit so much. Um, uh, oh, so yeah, that trait is what you're kind of looking for as a, a more complex thing to manage uh, with an injury, you know? makes oh, wow. it so much more complicated doesn't it but um yeah I, I i'm guessing when you're saying about uh and i think it's so interesting particularly in climbing um and other sport but also obviously we do climbing so we understand it that's the sphere in which we view the world but um yeah uh, uh the lens i should say uh but anyway um but what you were saying there about how like some people use climbing as a psychological mental health aid uh and yeah. some people um so it's got it's kind of almost like an addiction as a, like an obsession as well i'm guessing yeah. the, the key thing you said there before was you said about discipline 
and consistency being the yeah. two things to that though if you've got those two things that's going to expedite your recovery process um yeah so i'm guessing it's anything that could impair those two things is that right yeah yeah definitely and the sort of things that would impair that is being waffly over medicalizing it um being overly optimistic um without the facts and having that person leave the session none the wiser so what the hell's going on so you want to do the complete opposite with your session put them at the heart of it keep it simple use measurements that are relevant to them not what you used on the last person with a similar pattern or pain and um you're making it really bespoke and tailoring it to them and um having something that makes them feel that they're kind of almost their own mechanic to give them that control and then having a plan. If that goes right, we're going to do this. If it goes, if it doesn't go so well, we're going to do this, but it's still about moving forwards and keeping at the heart of it, what they enjoy, not giving them some boring isometric exercise, which has got nothing to do with their sport, you know? So mm. yeah, really tailoring it. That's, that's, the, the that's nice interesting as well. Job. So like giving people that agency back because injuries feel like you lose agency don't you suddenly everything's completely out of your control i notice it so much like the whole concept of understanding something and like the comfort you can get from like the certainty of what it is or like understanding what the issue is is like massive like i found like i mean a good analogy is like something if something's wrong with your car like I find that incredibly frustrating because I'm no mechanic. I don't understand it at all. And it's kind of like, I'm a, like, I'm completely helpless in that sense. And like kind of your body obviously is way more important yeah. than you. And like having the understanding of that, it's like, it's quite like, uh, I found even with injuries where like the difference overnight of like understanding what it is, like my like approach to it or like kind of like, um, the effect that it's had on me has been so much less severe just by knowing what it is and like how to approach it, like kind of like understanding what it is. Yeah. It feels like it's a massive like uh, boost in uh, like, yeah, my attitude towards an injury. Mm. Yeah, de- definitely. Uh, that's basically the pay- a person comes to you wanting to know what's happened. And I think for the first kind of five to six years of my career, and probably most physios will kind of like resonate, this will resonate for, you're trying to do that as well. You're trying to figure out what's happened. But what the person actually needs from you is to know why it's happened. And, and that's the sort of deeper level of it. And that's why I always try and look for. So the what becomes relatively easy, but the why is always hard. And as soon as I kind of get onto the why and I understand it, that's when I become a bit more positive about it all. Um, and you feel like you've got it in hand. Unless it's a catastrophic injury that's happened in a traumatic injury, the why is not so important. It's likely to be more external factors. But, um, yeah, if it's something that's kind of come on slowly or it's uh, a failure, uh, an overload failure, and you can kind of maybe trace it back to something deeper. And those people who are in a bit of a wheel spin who had a problem for ages, seen lots of people not got the outcome. They've usually not had the why answered. The what's always been answered correctly, but the why has never been quite worked out. And, and that's that's the kind of next level of rehab that you gets you kind of the good outcomes for more complicated problems. Yeah, yeah. You put yourself out of business if you're not careful. 
Quay People are working on these People have become their own physios <laughs> Yeah, but do you know what's really interesting? Use the car analogy People will People when they go to a mechanic The mechanical set up quid and they'll immediately be quite defensive a lot of them what have you done i want to know an itemized detail of what you've done a lot of people come and see me they don't really want to know the details of what's going on it's really interesting whereas <laughs> i'd be the opposite i'd want to know all the small details but yeah, yeah everyone's different everyone's got a different way of kind of looking at it it just surprises me sometimes how people just don't want to know the details yeah 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 they almost like walk in and want like a yeah when can i climb again how long is it? When am I going to max strength? When will it stop hurting? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They're good questions. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, those are the questions I would be asking, to be honest. Um, so what what is it that comes up the most? What's like the most common climbing injury that people knock on your door for? Um, well, it's, pulleys are kind of a pretty standard one, but I, I tend to see less people complaining about pulleys these days, mainly because I think people, climbers, understand them. So if they get a little tweak, they don't worry so much, they don't panic so much. There's been quite a lot of like fear around pulleys for a long time. Um, so yeah, you know, a, a tweak or a niggle tends to not see people coming in so much now. Perhaps a quick question at the wall, but they wouldn't come into clinic for it. Um, yeah, the big, the big well, the ones that go bang, you tend to look at in more detail. So I do see some of those occasionally. Mm-hmm. See a lot of elbow problems. You know, golfers are inside and outside elbow pain. Yeah, yeah. Been there for a while again. Never quite figured out why. So they've been given like the normally centric stuff, or like, but it's normally something more subtle than that. So perhaps there's a rotational element to the problem that's not been addressed. So you know, the muscle which turns your palm down connects the inside of your elbow and, and that might not have been addressed um and the same goes for the outside of the elbow like that rotational muscle that's called supinator that that might not have been addressed um another load might not have been high enough so you know they've just been underloaded chronically underloaded which again is something that i do see a lot um not when just talk about physios but in rehab people not putting enough stress to be able to do one arm pull up or to like catch a dead point with terrible feet and have that that elbow hold all that stress so see that quite a lot is there is there a bit of an issue just on that like because i assume like lots of the fat reason people uh so things like um actually no that doesn't make sense but like with pulleys and things especially um, yeah or like like you say the research or like the stuff that people do for like elbows and things like before mm. they see you um obviously like the protocols and things that are put out about them are like yeah. uh there's obviously a lot of like degrees and complexity even within those injuries so like you're talking about then yeah. like the ro- the rotation of your wrist and like the effect that that has on your elbows like whether mm. the classic like just like golfer's elbow or tennis elbow like rehab plan mm. is almost too reductive whether like yeah uh, there's almost definitely. like there's almost like a damage to like the maybe it could be like damaging the idea that it's like oh these injuries they've been solved i can like just look online and find that out like uh, yeah definitely there's nuance to that um a really easy one is to if you like for golf for tennis elbow for outside elbow if you put your elbow at 90 with your palm down 
you look at your middle finger and press on it. It's called a resisted middle finger test. And for some people with what we call lateral epicondylosis or tennis elbow, their pain will get worse as they straighten their elbow. But for others, it'll get worse as they bend their elbow because that tendon's being compressed over the bone, a bit like rope drag. And so they'll have a totally different movement pattern. So um, you can figure out a lot from a clinical test, same as the inside. You know, there's tests for the inside um, elbow. And some people, it's worse when their elbow's straight. And some people, it's worse when their elbow's bent for those reasons. The straight is that that muscle unit's failing as that, um, as it gets longer, you're, you're losing that ability to control that situation. The tendon doesn't like being stretched. But when you bend it into a deeper position, it's okay. So those guys would more likely to be okay to lock off, but perhaps not catch something at full extension. And the same would be, or the opposite would be true. It's okay when it's straighter, they might be okay to climb more open, but they'd be rubbish at deep lock-offs. And so there's, there's that sort of nuance to it as well. And you can you can see that if you kind of think about, if you test it from a climbing perspective and use that as a bit of a guide on how they get on the wall. Mm. Um, yeah, that's, that's really good. And foothold size is a big one. Uh, a lot of the time, you know, I say, don't really say stop to lots of people. I'll often say use really big feet and that'll yeah. uh, allow them to control how they grip things and reduce the forces through it. But again, using that principle of elbow, not quite too straight or not quite too bent. Oh, well, yeah. Hmm. Is there a potentially like, is there like potentially like a uh, damaging, um, could it potentially be damaging like the information which people read online to like think that they like, uh, if they like were to then just follow the, like as in like, is it quite easy for people who self-diagnose issues to misdiagnose them and like kind of potentially be quite damaging in that sense? I, yeah, I, I, as long as they're pretty switched on, I don't see any harm in them having a go and doing some good sound advice, you know, and, and uh, that's where I like people to keep their instincts. So I, I'm, I'm a big one for not robbing people of their instincts and someone who is understanding of the area of pain, does some good reading and then tries it out on their body with a weight. It's unlikely to cause anything to go massively wrong because relative to climbing, the force is going to be quite low. Mm. there's no harm in that and, and you know someone who figures that out for themselves is very empowering um mm. and a lot of people never come to physios because they figure that out they understand it they get more confidence in their body and you know they don't lean on someone so i, I don't think necessarily there's a massive risk in that obviously you do it for years that's my christmas jingle <laughs> oh it's very festive it's nice <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's it's it's the doorbell, so you might have to bear with me for a second. Is that oh, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you should put that Christmas doorbell in the um in the actual podcast. Though. I think that'll be quite nice. That is that is very nice. That uh, the Christmas doorbell. Yeah. Is that, do you have that all year round? <laughs> yeah, all year round. All year round. I've got I've got a five year old and an eight year old girl, and there's no way I'd win in a fight with them if uh, I turned it off. So it's on all the time. <laughs> It's, it's always Christmas around the Huffy household. <laughs> it is. It is, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so talking about, again, about... Uh, I, I wanted to uh, um, ask a little bit about the pulley thing because of, that is something that most mm. climbers will come across. Do you go for yeah. the um, progressive loading recovery for that? You know, like the really careful get a pulley and, like, two kilograms or something and just slowly build yourself up do you go for that so it really depends because it depends on the circumstances i've been 
in circumstances in, say, a World Cup where police gone and we've got no choice but just fudge our way through, um, which case we've got just no control. If we've got control and that person is happy, it depends on which pulley it is. So I'll always talk to the to, to people about this. If I'm seeing someone in the first week or two, maybe even three, of a pulley injury, and it's the A2, for instance, I'll talk about using a ring because there's a window. And if you don't get the ring on in time, you're not going to get that pulley repaired. Um, it's gone. And it's, you know, a school of thought out there that you don't need that one. And that is true, I would say, for the A4, because it's quite far away from your palm and it's only got one tendon running through it, the one that bends the end of your finger. But with, with the A2, it's a really strong pulley that looks after two tendons. And once that's gone, you've got your A1 in your palm, which is going to take more stress. And I see in people with a complete A2 rupture, them developing more trigger finger and tenosynovitis because that they're, they're A2 deficient. And so with the A2, I make a point of discussing that if they're within that window of trying to keep that, that pulley and use a splint, in which case it would be a much more conservative approach. Um, if they're kind of more than three weeks, four weeks down the line, it's a case of just getting on with it and, once it's gone, it's gone. And there's no point really taking ages to start loading because after four weeks, any stress from that initial injury will be calming down. And actually, if you take ages, that tendon will get weaker. The whole thing will take way longer than it needs to get loaded. So it's a case of just choosing the hand position quite carefully, but getting on with climbing, really. So I wouldn't start with anything like two kilos for that person. Mm. Right. So that's almost when somebody's like, ruptured a pulley entirely is that right yeah yeah that specifically the o2 if it's an a4 um pulley it's a bit more flex in that see plenty of world cup climbers doing their a4s i think magos did it he did it in japan his finger his pinky yeah. finger went and um you know he's not too bothered he thinks it's stronger without it and um <laughs> you know and, and with the a4 you, you can get away with that you can i mean i've done quite a few a4s with no issues but i've got yeah there's a2 is a different story so if you're within that window i'd always talk about preserving it if you can for, mm -hmm. for longevity you'll you'll get away with it for the first you know 10 years but there's a correlation with that and trigger finger and overload through the a1 which isn't designed to work without your a2 on lots of high angle crimping yeah 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 and lots when things like that fully rupture um quite often does that just require surgery or is that like no so, yeah no. so so this is an interesting one i i've been you know i go to these um lectures uh, with hand surgeons it's quite overwhelming because i'm sat there or sat up there with loads of really good hand surgeons and they've all got different different opinions on how to manage pulleys but with single pulleys a lot of surgeons don't touch it but they'll they'll let it heal conservatively if you've caught it in the window if you haven't then it's a personal decision whether you want to continue to climb in the moment so again if you're a world cup climber you'd probably want to just keep going if it was in the middle of a season an important one and deal with it at some point down the line um but you may not want to you may just want to keep going and, and climb with it deficient but i think more than one pulley you, you're looking at getting surgery if it's two in a row 
which it normally is. It'd be weird if you did your A2 and A4 and A3 was fine, you know. Wow, yeah. Yeah, yeah pe- okay. people finding that the conservative non-surgical treatment um, is just as quick and just as effective as long as it's just the one rupture. Is is that right? Yeah, that's right. And and, and it's quite a hotly contested thing because I think a lot of surgeons, you know, are really proud of the, the repairs on a single pulley and um, others say it doesn't make any difference. Uh, conservative versus surgical if you're catching it in time and I've certainly seen that and and I've had surgeons sort of swear that you can't form a pseudo pulley and and, that, and in these lectures I always try and keep a video of someone who ruptured their A2 and their bowstrings coming around 3.5 millimeters away from the bone um, and then with the pulley ring it, it's reduced down to around about 1.2 mil which is what you'd see on a, a grade one so it is fully functional afterwards um, but there's nuance in that as well, because if you don't look after the A2 properly, it'll heal quite thickened with lots of scar tissue. And then essentially you've got a smaller hole for the tendon to run through, and that can cause friction in its own right. So if you're going to go down the pres- preservative route, you've really got to manage it properly to let it heal properly. Essentially just be patient in those first kind of three to four weeks. Yeah, yeah. And that when when you talk about um the thickened pulley in the smaller space for the tendon. Yeah. That's like the, yeah. uh, that's being like teed up perfectly for a case of tenosynovitis, right? So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, nailed it. Exactly right. So, that's the stenosis, uh, a, a narrowed gap that you're getting friction from. And so, you do all this work and all this sacrifice only to have something that's likely to cause you potentially some grief in the future. So, you've got to just spell all that out, explain it. And um, at the end of it all, when you've got a nice, not too thick A2 that's really functional with plenty of slack in the system um, or space for the tendon to run through, you've done a good job. Uh, the thickened pulleys, uh, if rehabbed properly, have the potential to be stronger, right? Like yeah, the, definitely. Yeah, once once fixed. Yeah. yeah it's very rare to see a, a pulley go again. The same pulley go again. It's very rare. Oh wow! Well, that's a nice. That's yeah. a really nice bit of optimism for people out there who've uh, injured. Yeah, really. Is this is this could be the best way of making it stronger long term? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. It's like Mick the finger with his broken finger. He gets excited every time <laughs> yeah. it breaks. It's yeah, like ten wins. more presets in the bag. <laughs> I think I think Mick the finger might have some psychological. <laughs> you, you, you've got to get him on your podcast. Yeah, I feel we do now. He does it on a he does it on a coconut cut in half and turned upside down, which make it even more theatrical and weird. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Mick. Apologies to anyone who's just joined this podcast halfway through. I have no idea what we're talking. Yeah, about. Mick the finger. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Wow. Well, Mick, if you listen to this, please do get. <laughs> hey, he won't make a very good climber though because he can't bend his finger. Nah, he needs to get fused. Ninety degrees. I imagine there'd be some crack climbing that he could do pretty well out. Huh? Yeah. yeah, he can just wedge it in the right crack. <laughs> yeah. Um, one thing when when I was training, um back in day and um, there was a lot of stuff at the time about how actual diagnosis is overvalued 
um, mm. and that you only need to diagnose if the difference between your you know remaining diagnosis potentials would actually change the treatment um because yes. quite often quite often you don't need to know exactly what's going on if your treatment would be the same so do you, do you absolutely do you, is that the same in climbing you, you think sometimes it's actually not that important to figure out exactly what's going on yeah definitely definitely again it goes on to those tears of um, how bad the injury is if you don't need to go down to that level and someone can you don't need to you can put the microphone magnifying glass away and just get on with moving in a way it doesn't hurt definitely go for that it doesn't mm. require that detailed level of investigation and that's why i talk about over medicalizing it and over complicating it you, you know you, you're doing a disservice to um, yourself and the patient if you do that and you can and, you know, I've had some good lively debates with some good coaches online about this, and they're, they're always right when they um, when they say to you that the diagnosis isn't as important as like figuring out how to move around it. That's always true, um, but there are certain degrees of uh, injury that will require you to go deeper. We can talk about that in a bit if you want. I'm happy to talk about that. But um, yeah, if you can do it, if you can get away with that without the diagnosis and medicalizing it, which definitely gets overdone, then do that. Yeah. And do you, do you scan much? I, I used to scan a lot and now I scan less, but I still definitely scan. Um, yeah. What, it, when, when would you, and when wouldn't you think that someone might need a scan? So with scanning, um, it, it's all context driven. So you've got to be really specific. Um, if it, if there was someone uh, who had a torn pulley that had multiple pops, I would scan them. You know, if there's a palpable bowstring there, I would scan them just to figure out if we actually need to manage that in that early stage um, conservatively or they need to be passed on. Because the last thing you want to do is make an assumption that that's a mild tweak and miss that window for healing, perhaps an A2 or a multiple uh, pulley failure which would you know be quite messy to tidy up in the future um with shoulders so shoulders are sometimes an interesting one to scan so you can get these things called paralabral cysts that are basically like little cysts that sit in the back of your shoulder and it's like a breadcrumb you know like with, um was it Hansel and Gretel where they're throwing breadcrumbs and it leads you to uh, an answer uh, the paralabral cyst is an answer in the back of the shoulder if that's there the likelihood is you've got a um, a slap tear. And if it's there, um, it can be pressing on a nerve which um, controls your cuff. So some people who have um, a persistent weakness in the cuff and pain with like symptoms that look like it could be a, a slap tear, and there's tests you can do for that, um, then draining that cyst will take pressure off that nerve and allow the shoulder to start working again. Um, that's a really helpful thing to find. And no amount of rehab is going to sort that out. Um, what other ones are there? Um, so a good one that I see is like, so someone comes in with an A4 or pain around the A4. Um, uh, you can often find problems in the, the FDS, the half crimp tendon. That can have a tear in and the A4 can be absolutely pristine. Uh, it just hurts over the A4 because you're pressing on that tendon insertion. That, that, that would massively change how I'd manage that. So I'd go to actually start loading that A4 off the wall Oh, that, sorry, that the A4, the FDS tendon off the wall. So that's a good example of a scan being 
quite a directive um and giving you giving you kind of like a specific yeah. structure to treat and, and yeah. but would you would you scan someone for the reason of they desperately want a scan no no so um there's no one that comes in for a scan to clinic that i don't first treat as a physio so mm. um i'll always try and understand how one i'll talk to them properly make sure i figure that out then i'll um then i'll go through like the clinical tests i would do normally and if it looks really obvious and actually they're moving really well and they're strong i'd say you don't need a scan it's not going to change what you do you'll be you're plenty strong enough to climb the pain's pretty low um, we can always go back to it if you want. So I always kind of leave it on the table if they want to. But inevitably, if you're right, they'll forget about it because they'll start moving properly again. And that's like that seesaw that you, or that walk, walk you've got to like walk basically to not just over medicalize. And similarly, I've seen people use scans and they have used them to diagnose the, the what, the what it is. And they've missed the point because this is one thing you see in, 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 literature and in social media is that you could scan anyone and find things that look sketchy if you pin the diagnosis on that mm. you've totally missed the point um and a lot of the time when i'm teaching in uni I teach on a master's program there people will get really excited they'll, they'll say oh look this is that and i'll just say so what you know they'll say this is torn i'll say so what does it fit their their, their presentation and it just avoids people getting too excited and misdiagnosing and that's the, the pitfall of scanning yeah yeah yeah, I, I remember we used to talk about. Um, I think this is this is going to sound really <laughs> cliche and boring to to you, Huffy. But there was one that used to come up all the time when when we were at uni. It was the big. It was the big study. You, you, you I'm sure you know of the um, when they scanned a whole group of people who had spine pain or back pain of any kind. Oh yeah, and a group of people who didn't. And the group of people that had no pain in their back had exactly the same amount of disc prolapses and, um, yeah. uh, you know, structural, you know, apparent structural changes, but had totally healthy, normal backs. And, and they're the same number of those as the people who had the back pain. And the problem is, mm. so therefore, the corollary of that is that if you're scanning these people with back pain and finding the prolapse disc, you will then yeah, yeah. believe this is your problem, and so I'll treat this. Whereas in reality, yeah. you're you you've not caught the problem at all. That's something that could be totally um, asymptomatic. Yeah, yeah, and there's two two sides of that. One the person fixates on that problem and catastrophizes, and the other thing is your rehab goes completely the wrong way, waste the time for the person. So yeah, scanning is a good thing to to do, but you've got to first assess and figure it all out. Uh, and really be sure that they need that. Um, but those examples I've given you, you know, you don't want to miss a multiple pulley rupture. Mm. Um, and if you and if you do splint, if you make pulley rings, then then and someone's popped their finger, how can you be sure it's a NA2 uh, partial or complete? You know, do you guess and just put the pulley splint on and and hold that person back unnecessarily, or do you? Um, assume it's just partial and miss that window in which case what's the point of making the splint you know so sometimes it's good to know if you're going to put a, a pulley ring on and the patient would like probably to know to know they're not wasting their time but um, that's scanning in order to then do something about it it's like it's the opposite of it doesn't change the, the management you know mm. so you have to be dis discerning when you when you do it 
But there is one side to that, and that is in the, the research that I've been doing, and it's kind of new, and it and it and it contradicts a lot of the understanding out there. So surgeons, I've sat in a lot of surgical like meetings. They get a patient in, and the surgeon will say, "There's a hole in that tendon. That's gone." So we need to operate. I've, I've heard that a few times, less so these days. Then you'll hear therapists say, treat the donut, not the hole, which is this idea that if you're looking at a donut with a hole in it, okay, there's a hole in it, but so what? You, you treat the stuff around it, you keep moving. And that, there's, some, there's obviously a lot of truth in that, but there's nuance to that. And, and what I've been figuring out is that tendons can heal and holes can fill in. and pain will reduce with structural improvement. Um, and it's a, a relatively new thing that people are looking at. We always knew things healed. We didn't know necessarily why or what we could do to accelerate that healing. Like for instance, rotator cuff tears, there was a paper not that long ago and said half of them stay the same, 30% get better, 20% get worse, but we don't really know why. So the last two years I've been trying to figure that out and scanning is obviously really helpful because you can see the hole in the donut getting bigger. Oh, sorry, getting smaller or staying the same. And it's worked out some pretty interesting protocols that seem to massively improve tendon healing. But I've not really understood it enough to want to be able to like explain it here, other than to say it's an isometric contraction. Um, and it, it, it improves the tendon healing fivefold compared to like a typical protocol. Um, and it's just around stimulating the tendon so that, yeah, the receptors um, make stem cells start firing a bit more and, you know, improve the filling of that little hole, I suppose. So in, in some ways, I'm flipping on its head and I'm treating the hole, not the, the donut. And that seems to have big improvements in how that unit works. But it's early days and it's probably a little controversial if there's any physios listening to this, but. Yeah, so far, the, the yeah, it's almost like a fusion of like the, um, like the the what and the why. It's kind of like neither is yeah the whole. The whole. It's kind of like uh, yeah, trying to find a balance between like, um, yeah, it makes sense to like you want like a like a whole like more of a holistic like idea of it really. Um, Hmm. Uh, but yeah, trying to it's, manage both. It's specific. It's specific. It's catching an injury in the acute phase, recognizing that you can actually load in a specific way to improve how that tendon heals in that window. And with that, you're going to get better outcomes. So uh, it's nice because I can do this as a research and development, like government-led R&D project. And that's what I've been doing for like three years. And it, it, that allows me to scan and get people in. And then I get referrals from consultants and other clinicians saying this person suspected cuff tear. And then we can do these different loading protocols and we see this five-fold improvement in tendon healing, which is exciting. But um, it's all about what you do with it. Again, it's the so what thing. But mm. for me, something that heals five times better um, and has better outcomes is probably worth looking into in more detail. But it's, it's a bit early for me to yeah, really figure out to put a bow on it and present it. <laughs> I'm still figuring it out. Have you seen the um, general research base for climbing expanding quite rapidly since since the Olympics inclusion? 
I, I haven't really. No, oh. I've seen. <laughs> I've seen. I've seen more people talk about injuries, and I've seen more discussion in it about injuries, which is good. You know, like that's stimulating more interest in injuries and how we manage them. But in terms of like papers and research, not not a huge increase in it. Uh, Volker Schoffel's and his team put out that book on climbing medicine, which is a nice comprehensive view on, you know, uh, climbing medicine itself. And um, Andy, the process physio, he's got a book coming out on injuries. And, you know, Ned's book on training, Dave McLeod's book. You know, these are all good sources of information, but around like specific hardcore research, not, not a lot, which is why I'm quite interested in this stuff I'm doing and trying to, make it really useful specifically to climbers ideally mm, yeah that's yeah that'd be great um mm. we had one of our questions here um down which we were planning on asking you of um which injuries are the most complicated to treat uh and like oh, yeah. I, I think i think aiden wrote that question and when i saw it i thought like oh i wonder if it will be the shoulder because that's so complicated with so much moving around um, but if you do so much work with shoulders, do you now find that you're kind of on top of that now? I think like a standard cuff is quite easy to treat if the tear isn't massive, you know. Um, it's fairly simple. It's a rotational ball and socket joint. And um, if the numbers start stacking up, like the, the ratios are good, so they can roll in, maybe say that's a number three and roll out like a number two, so like 15 kilos in, 10 kilos out. That, that ratio, if it's similar to the other side uh, and not painful, that's a cuff that's fairly easy to manage and then just grade back into climbing. Uh, it's normally the things that don't contract. So treating those are harder. Uh, and the main reason for that is if, if you've got something that's connected to a muscle, then a climber or a person has got the ability to feel modulation in that. So they can themselves feel some innate control of where their pain is and move around that. Whereas if something's not contractile so like a, a ligament cartilage they're, they're, they're harder to to manage so things like you know a tfcc that's harder to manage um a slap tear is hard to man manage that's a, a cartilage mm. problem inside the shoulder joint because it's at the mercy of lots of things moving around it that are healthy so mm. you do your thing and then you get this kind of delayed effect heavy ache next morning it's really achy and and stiff you haven't got that immediate connection with the problem. You can't play with it as much. So they are harder to treat in my in my mind. You almost don't have like the pain as your guide to kind of, which is yeah. the best guide, but like as in like, yeah, with the more acute stuff where you can like, if you've got a sore finger, you can usually feel it if you're pulling up too hard on a small crimp. Like you have some feedback, yeah, exactly. I guess. Like, yeah, yeah, the cartilage stuff, yeah. a, bit, a bit of a delay. Yeah, yeah, you can't like control that with your mind, make it more or less tense so easily. Um, it's just sitting in the background doing its thing. And if it's injured, it's at the mercy of, again, climbing being totally random and you only figuring out it doesn't like that position after when it's really sore. Yeah, and then you've got to try and pinpoint what it was that caused the issue. Exactly, Whereas exactly. Generally, when we have a session, we have about thousands of different movements of what could potentially cause cause issues yeah yeah so if it's like a capacity a load capacity issue in one tendon like rolling in 
you just you stay on a deep lock off. I can't quite do that. My hands around the height of my shoulder going deeper, that's starting to really hurt. If you were in the gym and doing a bench press, you'd feel that at the very bottom of that bench press position. So you'd mm. just put some weights on your chest or, or you know, do something with free weights where you're starting the weight a bit higher and you'd work around it because you're directly connected to it. So yeah, it is the non-contractile stuff that the instabilities as well. They're they're the harder things to manage in climbing, in my experience. Uh, I feel like many people are kind of like waiting on this when lockdown struck um, and oh, yeah. so many people jumped on like their home gyms and their fingerboards and to a certain degree unanticipated people who had never really fingerboarded seriously as much before now like trying to fill yeah. the time that climbing would take with their fingerboarding um, yeah. and like um kind of expected that to have some repercussions not not necessarily because i thought that fingerboarding was dangerous because it feels quite a safe way to train but more in that like there yeah. are a lot of people that just weren't used to that volume of like strain on your fingers like for such a yeah. long time um did you like did you feel like there was like a big change uh, in the climbing world in any way uh, in, like, i definitely saw more on social media I saw loads of loads and loads of fingerboard stuff on social media, lots of showboating, uh, micro hangs and yeah, this sort of thing. But I didn't see a massive amount of acute injury. I saw overloading issues, which is interesting because like you say, you feel like fingerboarding is quite safe. I didn't see one acute issue the whole time. Oh wow. But yeah. I saw I saw lots lots of overload. So I saw things like tenosynovitis, so something that's just taken a while to build up from just excessive friction. Um I saw some of that FDS problem. So that's the the, the half crimp tendon attaching around your A4. So I saw yeah. attritional overload through that. I think we did a post on that on Instagram. Yeah, I remember that, that I saw yeah, I saw a lot more of that. It's probably a really boring lecture attached to it, but yeah. I um I definitely saw that and I, I got to understand that problem a little more because of lockdown because so many people were hanging on edges that are a bit too small for their tendons. So they were just getting a little too much stretch at that point and seeing a little bit of attritional tearing there. Um so that that was good because they kind of figured out how to manage that just with a bit more accelerated exposure to it. <laughs> yeah, it comes up more often. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I saw a lot more of it. I wouldn't like almost in some ways as well like if people manage to well obviously aside from like the overuse injuries perhaps you pick up like if people have like such a focused phase of like finger focused training like in many ways makes you far less susceptible to um injuries or like i've always found like uh being strong on like a fingerboard has often like translated quite well to uh i don't know i always feel like my it feels strange it's a strange idea to call your fingers healthy but like like, they feel like Mm. it's um it prepares you quite well to reduce your chances of injury yeah yeah so um that's a good example of of you having autonomy and confidence in your body through practice and that's what you always want someone to to sort of you know you want to kind of really encourage that and you'll have felt a correlation in hanging off a fingerboard and climbing well on rock. And it gives you a little marker. Oh, yeah, well, this is how my fingers felt last time, but I managed to do 
even more this time and that's translated well to rock so there's a, a cause and effect to that which is really really useful uh, and that's where being consistent and you know adapting how you do things based on how it feels to you is really important and perhaps not just following a, a set protocol but you know figuring it out yourself and getting in tune with how you feel like, like Ned's done you know he's written a book on it and that's all off he him moving and figuring his own body out body out the way that works for him and uh, that's what I try and encourage other people to do as well is they don't have to do everything a set way they can figure it out themselves and, and make it consistent and then see correlations with training and and performance yeah it's still um very anecdotal isn't it like climbing training um I yeah mean, I imagine like yeah it's all uh very much for experience um which is quite nice it kind of encourages you to be quite experimental i've always found that quite like fun it's a bit of a puzzle um and requires you to be quite yeah. switched on on like your reflection of what you do as as well as just like what you're doing yeah so it, it seems like a lot of parallels in, in you and dan in how you talk about things and you know he, he talks about sometimes he started off being a little bit of a mentor but you kind of are teaching him things now in how you operate. So do you think like working with Dan, he's given you a base and then you've kind of not improved on it, but adapted that based on how you feel um, using yeah. the principles? No, that's definitely something that I've like, I wonder if that like maybe the thing that, maybe the thing that more the like effect of that mentoring more so was like, uh, or the thing that affected me more was like the approach in which you like analyze your own like trends. I think we described them earlier, like in like what you do and the effect that it has, like the somewhat like quite calculated response to that, or like to um, try and understand that. I think that was the trait that was really valuable for me. And then like obviously mm. like probably I have more time uh, than him these days, and then like also just everyone tries different things like then that like process of reflection and feeding back and discussion in many ways like um obviously mm. not not every climber can try everything um, so it's i think that's where like no. the, the communication of it feels really important as well because like we can yeah. only, like i think because it's so for me it feels like climbing training is like so um there's so much to understand partly because the movement is endless um and also like, yeah. especially outdoor climbing it's somewhat dictated by there's an element of randomness and that you don't know what you're going to find when you go exploring in a remote part of scotland like and find a <laughs> dream dream project you have no idea what's going to be on it um so like yeah, you, can't, yeah. you can't like standardize preparation for that which like makes it really cool in that yeah you obviously experiment but like there's only so much experimentation or you can do and like obviously it's not very like, mm. efficient in many ways and like my like field of play has definitely been mostly like finger related or not finger related necessarily but like maybe that's the more unconventional thing in that i like uh, maybe it's the fingers in which i've approached in a slightly less conventional way which makes it stand out but like like you mentioned earlier about like the whole coordination of everything. Like I've like reflected a lot, yeah. but I think it's more the attitude I had to it, which has helped with my discussions with Dan. Like I still learn a mm. lot from him. He, he's still got 
um he still like te- feels like he teaches me a lot but i think it's like the thing that i feel has been most useful in that is yeah that like uh, analysis of uh what works well but then the communication as well i think it's I've, i'm really like i mean i really could I, I always think it's really good for climbers to chat about these little lessons they learn because mm. collect- collectively we can uh, we can do so much more than any individual can yeah, I think what you've talked about there, there's two things. There's your expression of your strength on rock, and then there's using some objective marker to kind of somehow get a rough idea of where you're at. And I think I think these days in climbing, um, I don't want to sound a bit um, cynical, but there's a lot of emphasis on the measurements and markers and not enough in the expression of climbing. So, for instance, there's lots and lots of stuff out there on how to kind of test. But I don't see any posts on how to climb better. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, much rarer. And, yeah, uh, yeah, and and sometimes I, I do wonder if we've gone, we're going a little too far um, away from climbing well, um, and how we how we can kind of get that back a little bit. Yeah, um, stuff like I was saying about you know. I could get someone with really strong fingers and, and 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 really crap hip mobility, and then someone with weaker fingers and good hip mobility. They both do the same climb, um, and so there's there's obviously more than one way to pull through a move, and and that beautiful expression of climbing, I feel like, needs to be, I don't know, it needs to be reestablished that balance a little bit. But because we are meticulous beasts, whereas climbers, we are sometimes a little vulnerable to focusing too much on the binary data and not enough in expressing that ability on rock yeah yeah there's almost an appeal in the measurability or like understanding of something i'm gonna have to yeah a a little bit extra cynicism and say that quite often the the former thing that you're saying is easier to sell uh than the than the last yeah 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 Um, yeah yeah the, the irony is that everyone's only what you'd hope doing all this stuff off the wall so they can climb better but yeah um, at what point do you kind of does the balance swing in favor of the thing that you're against the thing that you actually started doing this training for in the first place and so i think for some people it has swung that way so um when i've got someone who's injured and they want to start talking about numbers or um yeah how to break the problem down even more i'll just say go climbing you, you're fine to go climbing and if you don't wake your body up around this injury the injury is going to come back you could you rehab that that injury but if your rest of your body is weak as a kitten it's going to come back again so don't forget how to climb don't forget to enjoy climbing and take care of that little niggle on the side as part of your warm-up for climbing they're just like reframing it all and just making sure that they're remembering what's important and I imagine there's some people listening to this probably like resonating with and go yeah do you know what? I really miss climbing I'm really really bored of doing my boring rehab that doesn't seem to be getting me too far and and for those guys they just needed to go back to climbing sooner yeah yeah that's going to be music to some people's ears yeah i do i do love (laughs) i do love the uh the thing of don't forget to enjoy your climbing as well (laughs) yeah that that sounds simple but it's actually a message that you can never say enough because we've all i'm sure all of us have been uh, guilty of of occasionally losing sight of what we're doing all this for <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 
Yeah, yeah, but it's how hard we work to forget to forget how important climate is. Like we'll put so much time and effort and thought and anxiety and energy into doing things that pull us away from the thing we love. It's actually really hard work to do that. But that's where we kind of get in our own way as humans, sometimes mm. overcomplicate it. Or, and that speaks to the uh, you know the whole scanning thing. Sometimes that's the last thing you need to do. But hopefully, like there are times that you can see where it's a good good idea as well yeah. but that then it's not the norm to do that it's not the norm to scan so saying it's much more important to just move around the problem um now now things are very different and we mentioned briefly a little bit there about um uh social media uh but things are hmm. with 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 instagram and the fact that people try and make a living out of instagram and various businesses and groups and everything they need to throw out a lot of content um do you see hmm. is there any kind of like misinformation that you see being thrown out there that kind of winds you up a bit yeah um not really uh, yeah you probably want something juicy there but it's kind of what i said really there's a lot of stuff out there on how to train off the world but hardly anything on how to climb well that, mm. that's the real thing i'd like to see more of and there are people out there doing it um you know the mindset side of climbing and um, i really like some of the stuff i see out there and hayes is doing quite a lot of work on that there um, you know, why you're doing it, what, what mental state are you in when you're doing it and why? I think that's really good. Um, I'd like to see perhaps a little less analysis of a, what is essentially an expressive artistic sport. Um, it is important, which is why people are doing too much of it. I think, you know, just sort of dialing back on that a little, I'd say. It'd be nice to, to get the art back in it a bit. <laughs> yeah, mm. can be a bit reductive all the um, training metrics yeah I mean, it's, it's all great you should do it because you'll get better if you do that but um with injury it can in the same way as scanning it can like create anxiety you can get focused on things that aren't so relevant yeah and then get all low because you can't do eight one armors with 10 kilos yeah. and then <laughs> and think you're a terrible client i don't think i could ever do that <laughs> no, no, yeah, no yeah 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 yeah, I could barely do one. <laughs> <laughs> I remember Dave Graham saying he couldn't do one. I didn't believe him, and then he he, he showed me and he really couldn't do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I, I mean, I find I find doing a one armor hard. Like, yeah, pretty. Yeah, feels pretty limit. Um, yeah, yeah. Which, uh, but I used to care about it a lot more than I do now. <laughs> yeah. It's Boy. it's it's stuff that it's old school sort of showboating. I remember in um again in the World Cup in Japan, I gave out the hand gripper um to everyone, and it was funny. Everyone flocked around the plinth, and they were all like squeezing the crap out of it, including the coaches. And I think that the highest score from an athlete, um, I think it was Timonov. He, yeah, he scored high. Timonov scored high, but everyone else was around the sixties and fifties. Uh, but the coaches were all in the 90s, but we couldn't do the warm-ups of these athletes. Do you know what I mean? Wow, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I remember seeing a rodeo, um, he gave them out in a rodeo competition, and all these rodeo riders, I thought, oh, these guys are going to absolutely demolish this. And they're all around 50s, 60s. But there's no way, I mean, I, I've got a grip of maybe like 90, 95 kilos, which is high, but there's no way I could hold on to that bull either. So it's, it's one of those things, again, a metric which has stopped being useful about 30 kilos ago. Yeah, thirty percent, thirty percent too strong. You know, yeah. strength. Yeah, 
yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a good point. That's definitely it. Yeah. There's such a thing as strong enough. You mentioned Dave. Great. Yeah. It's a good example of that. Yeah. Oh, he's a great climber, isn't he? Yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, that's the thing. I think it's a good distinction of like a great climber and a strong one. He's a... Yeah, and so much longevity in the sport as well, and so much psych still as well. You know, he's, he's built differently, Dave. It's, yeah, yeah, it's yeah, great. Yeah, yeah, no, I think it's good to have role models like that. Mm. Still doing it. Yeah. Still doing it in his 40s. Yeah, still doing it, but he's kind of, he's still doing it. He's got that kind of like statesman status, but he's still performing really, really high level. Yeah, like last year, probably is like greatest year of climbing yet, I imagine. <laughs> yeah, he's yeah. still still on yeah. a good trajectory <laughs> yeah yeah it's fine uh, yeah definitely I, it's funny i met him when i was i was in the um, the buttermilks um actually i was at the happy happy boulders and i was on this random trip around the states the three-month trip and the, the guy i was with was a friend from north wales was a dj he, he doesn't climb he's not the fittest and he was carting around this massive bag of vinyl in the hope that he would find somewhere to DJ. And I was, <laughs> I was, I was bouldering at the happies and, and I came out of the corner and he came around and he goes, Oh look, this guy likes the prodigy. And it was Dave Graham. And I was like, no way. <laughs> what are the chances that my DJ mate found Dave Graham on the basis of his music taste. Before you did <laughs> in the boulders. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but then we had a little session. It was, it was awesome. Yeah. Just like a, a random encounter. Yeah, I actually found out that he DJed quite recently. Um, yeah, I listen, listen to some of his stuff on his SoundCloud. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Talented. A little fun fact for you. <laughs> yeah, did, yeah. Did you enjoy it? Me? Yeah, yeah. I appreciate it. Yeah. I didn't like. It. <laughs> not not usually the music I'd listen to, but I appreciate it. <laughs> it's <laughs> um, such a refined answer i appreciate it i can imagine you just like you know gently nodding to the music appreciating it yeah he's he's he's, he's, he's he's quite a good politician as well oh, no. yeah 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 oh, no. you can imagine the music was totally crazy like totally mental music but like aiden's just quietly appreciating it legs yeah. folded having a cup of tea just, just, I, I appreciate the endeavor i'm going to listen to it on 10 percent. i think volume <laughs> so, yeah you've just got to admire the creativity um, yeah <laughs> he's just a psych psych human isn't he dave he's just a psych human it's brilliant yeah yeah no it's amazing to have like uh yeah definitely yeah. um definitely uh an inspiration um I feel like we've um, asked a few things here. So the answer might be no, but um, one of our uh, <laughs> one of our patrons um, asked if you're aware of anything uh, going on research-wise um, to expedite tendon hypertrophy. So I don't know what you guys think to this, but you know, there's a lot of people taking collagen and glycerin, and the more more recently, there's you know peptides. So there's you know peptides out there that have got you know promising results but have been kind of put on the banned list um for athletes because they don't know whether or not they're safe um but tendon derived stem cell research is is quite a hot topic these days um i can't i, I, can't, I am interested in these peptides i've been looking into them and how they affect injuries um but 
the best thing out there that I can see in terms of performance. And if you're talking about um, improving hypertrophy, I suppose you're talking about um, cross-sectional area uh, and, and density, as it's known um, on social circles. Um, just having a consistent loading protocol mm. is really what you're, what you're after there. You know, it, mm. unfortunately, there's no way of speeding up how those tendons perform at a high level. You can speed up how they heal in the early stage, but that long-term cellular matrix adaptation takes a long time. That's sort of type one collagen that you want to try and uh, hone and, and, and get thicker and, and stronger. It's just consistency over time, really. And I would say that there's no silver bullet for it. That's one thing on social that sometimes I see um, that perhaps gets overplayed. And I do them, those long hangs. I think they're really good for your tendons and stiffness. But just going climbing regularly and um, performing well, but not to fatigue, will always make your tendon adapt, you know? Mm. So it's not like you're taking the blue pill for your tendon and the red pill for your, you know, lock-off strength. <laughs> they're not that disparate, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's funny you say that because I'm literally was listening to you answer that question while drinking my collagen supplement. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm desperately there trying to swig down my quick fix <laughs> while nodding along. Instead of clearing. No, when I was when I work with people with tendon problems, um, I'll often advise them to take it because there's no harm in taking it. it. It's it is there's a cost to it, but there's no downside. And perhaps you don't want to wait ten years to find out that actually it was pretty helpful. There's a lot of people, you know, that Eric Horst's um, mix that I don't know what they call it, but um, it's got a few things in it alongside collagen. Uh, there's lots of people who swear by that. Mm. Mm. yeah actually, is that a fizzy vantage is it that one yeah fizzy vantage yeah, yeah yeah other products are available yeah yeah exactly <laughs> I, I, i've got no professional. idea <laughs> i've got no idea if it actually helps anything to do with strength but it, it seems to have made my fingers less achy in the mornings that that's about as far as it goes well that's a good thing because that's really interesting to hear you're a physio because um I've I've listened to a lot of these podcasts, your podcasts, and uh, you, you talked quite a lot about being injured for a long time in them. So, what what's actually going on with you? And like, it sounds, it looks like you're doing quite well. You're climbing on boards more and things like that. Oh yeah, I mean, it, the thing is, it's um, it's just impossible to to heed it. I'm just terrible at heeding my own advice or heeding anyone's advice. Really, I just kind of climb <laughs> relentlessly and and carry on. <laughs> That's doing what so I'm ironic. Doing. Yeah, I know. The reason, painful, you left, isn't it? Your reason you left physio is because of people like you. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Basically, basically, I had this, I had this terrible belief that everyone else was as awful as me, and it turned out they aren't. <laughs> Wait, equipped with this, equipped with this new knowledge that you are a physiotherapist graduate, it makes me even more baffled about the stories we've discussed about you, like when you pull your hamstring on an attempt on yeah 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 of wonder and then oh yeah, yeah hold on again and... it again <laughs> i know I, this i'm afraid of a walking contradiction yeah um, oh, i can fix yeah. myself later <laughs> i i don't follow any of my advice i'm just i'm like i think many people out there are just like i'm a climbing obsessive and i can't stop so i do it yeah yeah because i need to do it as i guess it's 
psychological or whatever or maybe it's just an addiction but uh i just don't mm. stop so i plan on stopping when the wheels fall off really Oh man. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's a spirit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And everyone sort of nods along and goes, Oh god, that sounds like a ticking dive bomb. <laughs> and, it, and it probably you, is. You'd been you'd have been better off uh, never really understanding the damage you can potentially do to yourself. <laughs> but um it's funny because <laughs> one of the things I've really been struggling with is tenosynovitis. Um I, uh... and and I found this study which told me exactly what I wanted to hear. So I've put a lot of uh, I put a lot of stock in that study, where basically, essentially, they did a, a variety of different modalities for people with tenosynovitis, and they discovered that on average, it took seven months to get better, regardless of what they did, including <laughs> the people who just ignored it. Um, ah. and, I, and I'm glad to say that mine is basically just about fixed up now, and it's been about seven months, and I ignored it. Hey, that's great. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I was I was quick to leap on that because it told me exactly what I wanted it to tell me, and it yeah. said, yeah, and yeah. it said you need to, you know, reduce your load for two weeks. I would have gone, nah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think it's I think it's climbing through it on your terms because you can't climb through tennis of synovitis in a World Cup. It, it, that won't go away in six, seven months. If you're still doing a circuit, that'll be worse than ever, no doubt about it. Mm-hmm. So what you've done is you've you've taken the fact that it's not a, a massively serious problem; it's annoying in the background, and you've basically trusted your instincts, which is what is the number one thing with anyone who's injured to teach them to do. So yeah. I guess this you've you've gone become wise in the long run there. Um, if it, if that's the case, then it's wise by default. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you fluked you fluked some wisdom. If that's yeah. impossible, you've done yeah. it. <laughs> well, this this trained monkey has written out at least a couple of pages of Shakespeare. Um, <laughs> yeah, but uh, uh, yeah, one of the things though I I was going to ask you about is like, what do you feel about taping? like Mm. classic zinc oxide taping because i've heard some mixed reports about it now and like obviously there's no way you can tape that's going to actually offload your fingers for like more than you know a certain you know relatively short amount of time um yeah so why is it still so prevalent and do you think it's still worthwhile at all so uh, I use so yeah that thing you said about taping, we know we know if you tape let's say the A two you tape above the A two it's like three or four times more effective at reducing bowstring but beyond like six or seven kilos it's not going to change your bowstring so it's impossible to climb and put um, less than seven kilos through your fingers so yeah taping won't change the mechanics of your A two no chance but if you taped the reason the way I use taping is I tape. Um, above the A2, uh, essentially over half of that middle knuckle, the PIP joint. And what that does is it actually mechanically gets in the way of you bending that finger more. Mm. So it provides a bit of a passive monitor. So you feel that that finger's flexing and it'll stop you from going into a deeper crimp. And just doing that reduces the flexion angle through that finger and will in turn protect structures like your A2, like your trigger finger, like your PIP joint that's, you know, got a bit of synovitis. So it's like a passive monitor. I think it's good for that. But I definitely see it um, 
being used where it shouldn't be. So if you've got tenosynovitis and you're taping, take that tape off because just like the A2 that hasn't healed properly is too thick, you're essentially getting a stenosis, a compression of that tendon sheath and the tape will be making that worse. Mm. That's really interesting, isn't it? So actually your efforts to offload it can actually make it worse as you increase the friction. Yeah, you're compressing it. You're, you're increasing, you're reducing the breathing space and increasing the friction. Mm, that's really interesting which makes loads of sense but people don't realize it yeah it makes total sense but it means that like therefore it is important to know you know if you're at home now thinking you've got a little bit of a something going on with your finger it's really important to know the difference between if it's a a pulley tweak or tenosynovitis because if you're going to tape it you might make it worse if it's if it's tenosynovitis which can so yeah those two injuries can so often back up against each other as well well. yeah exactly it can become a vicious circle but the main thing to notice is the flexion angle of the punching knuckle and the pip so if you can reduce the amount of flexion there you'll offload those structures and then climbing through an ignorable you know dull three out of ten pain as long as it's not worse the next day there's no building inflammatory pattern it's much more important to keep moving on that stuff and that's what sam's done Mm. yeah interestingly so you, presumably you're not taping sam no no um no, no i don't know yeah. yeah i'm not a yeah, great exactly. believer in zinc oxide taping because of like after you've done three or four contractions it's more or less you've gone you know it's not going to do its job very well anyway the only time i would do it is like what you were saying earlier of like if if i've got a bit of a tweak i i just kind of mummify my finger to reduce it and the limit yeah 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 yeah, just a limit range of motion yeah but besides that i try and stay away from from tape yeah where it's tapes really good another example of like passively controlling something is if you've got a lumbrical issue say between your ring and your little finger and, you know, if you bend that little finger, again, on the Instagram, I've got like a one, two, three test. And um, that's really positive if you've got um, a lumbrical injury. But if you tape the ring and the pinky together, you don't separate them. You don't create that shearing through the lumbricals. So that's a good, easy way to let that lumbrical settle. Um, so that, that's another good example of when mm. taping works. But in order to tape to offload forces, it's not strong enough. So, oh, yeah. yeah. The, the one that I always find funny is, is like the little bit of Kino you know, K-taping. You yeah. see people like strap yeah. a little bit of an elastic band to their shoulder and then do like a World Cup level yeah. shoulder move. And you think, what the, what do they think that has yeah. done? <laughs> I guess like, yeah. I kind of feel like, well, you kind of mentioned it before when you were taping and you were talking about you, like the tape almost restricts the flexion as well. Like there's like a certain amount yeah. of like the awareness which like tape can bring to stuff. So like, as in like, yeah, obviously like definitely. if you take something so that near the like uh, limits of your range of motion, like the tape, like yeah. pulls a lot on your skin, then like you yeah. kind of like have a lot of awareness of where your arm is going and like kind of like it's somewhat like it impedes those like movements in the extremities of that, which kind of feels like it could be valuable. But um, yeah, it gives you a bit yeah. more feedback, doesn't it? Yeah, that's why I use the word passive monitor. That's what that is. And if someone's, you know, so a lot more sedentary, and let's say they've they've got some issue that with their back and they they sit badly, just putting their watch on the other wrist, you know, they they they'll feel that's different. They're constantly looking, and it's a constant good reminder to remind them to you know switch up a little bit. And that's that's a good way of using that sort of stuff. Um, but yeah, you can't rely on tape really to do much. 
um, if there's a proper significant injury there. But, you know, it's big in the World Cups and you see some people, I know they keep being taped exactly the same way because that's how they feel or that's how they felt when they performed well. And so it's part of their ritual and routine, you know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like um, people are... Uh, you know they have their routines don't they and, and um, they're a little bit yeah. superstitious perhaps and they need to feel yeah you know like they've got everything in 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 order yeah absolutely yeah and I know there's research on tennis players that they actually encourage people to have these weird little ticks because people who have them yeah. perform better than people who don't um yeah and yeah. like i mean uh, i think yeah. we talked about that on one podcast didn't we aiden of like how actually we do have them like before before i pull on i always slap my thighs twice and blow on my fingers just because it's a tick mm-hmm. it doesn't yeah. do anything yeah um and i think but it's so, so and we were kind of talking about it and like, actually we kind of thought we all had like something that we did kind of just like without thinking about it yeah, yeah. little rituals yeah, if you look at like, um, say, John Wonchon, you look at all the tape he's got. There's no way he's that injured. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. <laughs> you can't, been, you but, can't have been that injured for the last four years and still be really strong. <laughs> but, but it looks kind of cool, exactly, doesn't but, it? <laughs> it does look cool. Yeah, even you know companies that kind of you know Red Bull. It looks quite cool the way Miho's got that on her arm. It looks cool. You know, it's a good advert for Red Bull. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and but but obviously it feels good to her. That's normal for her to compete with that. So to have it to not have it would be like having the watch on the wrong side. It just wouldn't feel right. Yeah, yeah. and that's right. and that's you know a small percentage that might you know swing the situation in her favor. And that's where you know things like taping become less about it making sense and more about performance. And sometimes performance just doesn't make any sense. So you just got to put stack everything in your favor. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. This maybe that just made me think. You mentioned Miho's Red Bull on her shoulder thing. There was like yeah. a craze this year of people putting like some little titanium stickers over them. Do you see? Oh that? yeah, 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 yeah. There was like a, I was confused by the number of people that were doing that. Um, yeah, I don't really know what the claim of the difference that makes it but it was just uh i mean i've never tried those but it was also something which like were very obvious on like the live streams and things um so yeah, yeah, I, so, I, so I know, missed this yeah they're people... called fighting the fight it's called fighting the titanium technology patches and the, the, the japanese have been using them for a little while um around the, the neck and, and shoulders and um yeah yeah, it's an interesting one. Um, I think people are using lots of different things for performance um, in sport around climbing, but I can't go into that in this <laughs> podcast. But, you know, again, the titanium, the, the, the fight and stuff is is obviously just titanium. Um, and, you know, the idea is that it helps with muscle soreness and um, in turn helps improve performance. Um, it's it's kind of akin to the, the K-taping. Um, yeah. Oh, okay. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Probably not going to change the game. But, uh... <laughs> I don't think it'll change the game. No. <laughs> Marginal gains. Marginal gains. Yeah, yeah, exactly. 
<laughs> oh, I had um, one other question, kind of unrelated. It's more of a training thought. Yeah. Um, you mentioned earlier, I think, you, well, I feel like you've probably heard a bit about me and Dan that are about um, the high yeah. angle crimping stuff. Um, yeah. And you'd clearly observed a little bit more about like the movement pattern around it. But um, if we yeah. just to like simplify that to the fingers by themselves, mm. um, yeah, I'm sometimes quite interested in to like, there seems to be a lot of like conflicting ideas in like the uh, crossover between like um, the risk between like angles of flexion or like angles of flexion in like, um, uh, we discussed a little bit when we were talking about tina synovitis and the importance of that. But um, yeah, in, in terms of like any form of adaptations, I'm always quite interested to see like how that uh, impacts, like um, how that like how like training in an open half could impacts like that like full flexion kind of thing. Um, and like I guess okay. like mechanically from an injury kind of thing the position of this so-called high angle crimping is probably, I don't know, probably a bit riskier or like historically kind of thought mm. of as like a bit more dangerous. Um, but uh, yeah, kind of like, it's quite hard. Like I really don't think like it's, it's not particularly valuable people saying like, or like the classic thing of like, Oh, don't crimp when you train inside. Yeah. I think yeah. is obviously yeah. not very, not very yeah. helpful. Uh, or like the, no, no. the, um, the degree to which it is like mechanically more dangerous, like from a like injury prevention, I'm always like quite intrigued about like um, whether like mm. you, yeah, whether you have any like insight or like understanding on like because obviously people rupture pulleys. To be honest, like a classic A4 thing or like pulley rupture is usually when people go from a half grip to an open hand, isn't it? Is that for that often happens when like it can be it can be yeah when like a pinky pops off or something and they like drop in yeah there. yeah um or like you don't necessarily have to be full crimping to uh rupture something I'm always quite intrigued no yeah yeah so pulleys tend to rupture a lot more with rotational stress when it's under high tensile when a tendon's under high tensile load. So it's fine if it's linear. So if you're directly under a hold and crimping with a good kind of like weight distribution and everything else, you should be able to pull as hard as you want. You're very unlikely to rupture a pulley there. It's when there's a rotational force that puts stress on a on a pulley, which is already kind of holding that friction because they're not strong enough to withstand that rotation of the way that they're aligned. It, it isolates a weakness in them. So if you've got a, a right hand crimp and you're you're you turn your body to start rocking up to the to the left, that's going to create a lot of rotation, uh, yeah. and that's where it's going to go. So yeah, or if your foot pops, that's sudden shock loading. But uh, with regards to the high angle stuff, um, I, I was really interested to hear Dan talking about that, and you can tell when someone knows what they're on about because they don't display like this black and white extreme thinking um he, he he prefaced everything with like being in context and he, he thought so much about every bit of it. it it was really good um and i think for performance it makes a lot of sense to be able to actually pull in and engage 
um, on that hold, as opposed to basically getting to a point where you're not pulling in and having to like dead point something because you're not keeping control. I think that's why it works so well for you talking about, you know, keeping that contact and all the dots connected. Um, but it's just a fact though that, you know, I call it your punching knuckle. So the, the, the bottom knuckle of your hand, the, the more bent that is, the more friction there is between that interface of your A2 and your A1. And yeah, so okay. If you're not used to being there and you suddenly start trying to do it, it is going to put more force through that, which is fine because you might be able to just condition yourself up and go for it. But if you start developing that like dull latent ache that um, is there later on in the day or hurts when you're on a keyboard or hurts when you stretch it back, that, that's more likely to be some like mild irritation there. Um, yeah. But I think it's a great, a great thing to be able to do and it makes a lot of sense. Um, I, I'm actually really interested in it because it's the position I tell people to move away from if they're injured. So if you go into like a Magos half crimp position with a dragged pinky and a neutral punching knuckle, essentially yeah. you've really offload, offloaded that interface between your A2 and your A1. Um, and that's yeah. where we normally kind of try and try and keep people if they've got that problem. But I yeah. would encourage training into that if they don't, if you don't have pain, there's no harm in that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's like the whole argument of like, if you can load it up in a safer environment, like on a fingerboard, yeah. like it's going to be, uh, people are going to, when you need to hold a hold like that, people are really going to not do that. So, uh, nice yeah, prepare, exactly. Prepare yourself before then. <laughs> yeah. And it obviously works. So you're a good advert for it. So when, when people hear you talking about it, they'll want to train it. Um, the thing that makes you different to other people is one, you've been doing it for years. And you've built up really carefully with good guidance. Um, and two, your pinky finger is pretty long. Mm. And um, uh, for a lot of people, their pinky, if they look at it, will be sitting around the same height as the, the, the DIP, so the top knuckle of their ring finger. Um, and, and, and I'm interested in that, that wow. angle because I've, I've done calculations. Yeah, all right, Aiden. My index and pinkies are like the same length. <laughs> <laughs> I know. And I don't think I don't think a lot of people realize that. But yeah. if if you've got a normal pinky, for, for every millimeter of height you want to gain in that, you'll need to um see about four degrees more flexion running through the uh, I normally the middle thing because it's the longest. So if you've got quite a short pinky and you want to gain like five mil, you're gonna get a massive amount more flexion through your punching knuckle and the middle knuckle. And that's where we see synovitis type problems in that middle finger because when people are trying to high angle on their pinky, which is really short. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, for sure. Like, yeah, to get any, to yeah, to get the pinky in a position where it like contributes to like generating that force away from the wall, the other fingers have to be so acutely flexed that yeah, like, you, you're in a somewhat... I, I, yeah, suboptimal position. Yeah, so the pinky finger's uh, length is important, but also like the metacarpal length of your hand as well. So some of the guys on the team have got pretty short metacarpal, especially the fifth. And so they're going to really struggle to high angle on that. And the, the other thing that maybe is just assumed with you is that you must have really good rotational strength in your forearm. So in order to put that pinky down onto the, the rock, you must be able to supinate. That's turning your palm up really quite well 
to, to keep that rotational strength. And that's not a strength that's normal for climbers to have. If you're screwing a screw into the wall, you always roll um, uh, palm down and we climb as super, as um, yeah, fully um, pronated apes. Mm. Um, but yeah, that supination, that counter rotation is something that whether you realize it or not, you must be quite strong in to, mm. in, order, in order to stabilize that side of your hand. Been putting some screwing some screws in my hand. <laughs> Wrong way. <laughs> yeah, taking lots of screws out. So, <laughs> yeah, taking screws out exactly. Yeah. But actually, it's quite it's quite quite his defense which handy. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah yeah yeah. True. yeah. yeah yeah yeah. Oh yeah, good. <laughs> yeah yeah. Oh no, that's a uh, very. Yeah, so there's exactly. a lot that there's a yeah there's a lot that goes into a high angle and. um there's a lot of training that someone would need to do if they wanted to try and speed up uh, the process without a reaction, like the intrinsics of your hand as well. Like I don't know if you know it, but you've got three intrinsics in that little pinky side. They're all called something, something mini me. Um, and then they're, they're really quite strong little muscles. So your mini me muscles, uh, your trio of mini me muscles are also going to be really strong. I didn't uh, even and know again, that was something I like mini. Yeah. Yeah. I do. I don't know if it's the Austin Powers guy, if he's like based on your little finger muscles, but he does put a little finger in his mouth when he goes, ooh. <laughs> maybe he is. Yeah, yeah. Ah, little mini me's are doing me proud. Little mini me knowledge, yeah. <laughs> so basically, if you if you want to get good at high angle crimping, you've got to throw away your impact driver. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Even if you're a professional yeah. setter, just do it all by hand. Just yeah, yeah. So, and, so, and so tighten, set, tighten every screw with your right yeah. hand. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There you go. Yeah, put Makita out of business. <laughs> yeah. But uh, <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, no, thanks so much for joining. Uh, ah, it's been a pleasure. An yeah, it's hopefully been an it's honor. been useful. Some stuff has <laughs> been useful. Uh, ah. If not, just to massage your ego about how long your pinkies are. <laughs> yeah i was quite i was quite sadly looking at my pinkies which were just as yeah. short as you were saying they were going to be <laughs> yeah. yeah we're both average unfortunately yeah but, but yeah thank you for having me no, no i hope i hope it was kind of um enjoyable <laughs> yeah yeah it's always useful to listen to why why you think something is as it is and um yeah yeah it's a great area to be working in and um yeah it, it, the, the big thing is like try and be empowered and trust your own instincts i'd say that as like number one and number two there's always a way to keep moving forwards usually unless something's catastrophic um mm. and so yeah it, and, and climbing is more important than training i would say that's like a big one if you can't climb well it doesn't matter how well you train yeah oh, i like that yeah that's oh, great we normally ask if anyone's got any kind of like last comments, but you've just done it for us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 Oh, amazing. That's nice a great place to cool. leave it. Brilliant. Thanks so yeah. much, man. All right. Yeah. No worries. Take it easy, guys. Cheers. Yeah. Thanks. I appreciate that. See you. See you next. Bye. 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 And that's where we thought we had ended our chat um, with Huffy. But just as an indicator of how fastidious the guy is, um, about an hour after we we stopped talking, I got a message from him to say that he wasn't fully happy with the answer he gave 
um, about when he would ultrasound something, uh, when he would scan something in clinic. He felt like he'd, he hadn't answered that question as well as he would have liked to have done. Um, and so he asked to come back, uh, to, to answer, to answer that properly. So we have a little bit more. But yeah, this is actually, this, I always wondered if this might happen, but this is actually a first. Uh, in that in that um after finishing uh, a conversation because i think normally after people chat to aiden and i for the sort of nigh on three hours they're kind of sick of us but so this is the, <laughs> this is the first time that, first exhausted. time i've had a message yeah it's exhausting but this is the first time i've had a message afterwards to say that there was something else you wanted to add um, yeah so it was about the the question of when you would use ultrasound, or or particularly it was scanning in general, wasn't it? Of when you would sort of scan. Yeah. It, um, was, it was about management and scanning and when, when you do mm. it, when you when you wouldn't. And you you being a physio, as you revealed, kind of quite rightly put it out there that you could scan a hundred people and find symptoms in all of them that might quite, but there might be that doesn't feel any pain. And there's the pitfalls of scanning. And if you rely on it too much, it'll definitely lead you down some wrong routes. Mm. Um, and then you, you, again, you said, quite rightly said, how would it change the management and what you do anyway? That's a good, healthy question to ask anyone who scans. If they can't answer it, then may, maybe they shouldn't be scanning <laughs> yeah. because there's a risk that they over-medicalize things and make things more complicated instead of just talking to that person about what they can and can't do and finding a way through it you know, naturally, mm. the traditional route, I suppose. Um, but there are things that ultrasound can be really useful for in in terms of definitively changing the way you manage things. I guess I thought it would be good just to highlight those. Um, for clinicians listening and people who perhaps don't realise that it can be a, a really useful pivotal kind of scan um, that changes management and most importantly avoids the misdiagnosis or unnecessary delays in someone getting the right help, you know, because mm. there's often a window behind a lot of these things. So if someone ruptures their A2 and they want to go down the preservative route, they've realistically only got, you know, one, two weeks to kind of get that splint on and repair that thing. And that in itself is a debate, which we probably won't go into, but if it's an A4, I generally tend to leave it um Leave especially someone's in, in the sense of just uh you know just just carry on yeah if someone's in the middle of a world cup the, the chances are they're just going to ignore it and carry on um mm. yeah that happened to jesse uh, in a world cup that uh, she put it out there anyway um I remember scanning her and she goes what does it mean and she obviously had the olympics coming up and so it was a no-brainer I and mean, quite a few megas that's happened to megas and if someone's in the middle of a trip and they were really close to a project, then, you know, they may want to consider not trying to preserve that A4. But if you've got no pressure and you don't necessarily think you're going to be climbing a lot for the next three, four weeks, it might be worth looking at preservative measures. But with the A2, I think it's always worth trying to preserve that one, um, as we've talked about, because it just protects your A1 and prevents that long-standing chronic problems down the line. So that's a good example of when scanning can be quite directive. Um, but more recently, I've found things like people who've got pain around the A4 ends up being a problem where the tendon that you know is involved in half crimp, 
that tendon inserts directly under that A4 and near enough directly underneath. And for that, you need to really spend time strengthening that tendon past the point of pain because it's one of those things when you miss it and it's only retrospectively when someone's come in and said, I've told I got an A4 problem, but the pain keeps coming back. You realize it's an anchor of a tendon that's never quite been isolated enough. And that climber, like all climbers, tend to like crimp around it between with the other fingers. And so the rehab there is to isolate it and load it and recognize it as an anchor problem and treat it as an anchor problem. That tends to stop it coming back. That makes sense. And when you say anchor problem, what do you mean by that? Just the point that that tendon joins into the bone. Mm, right. Yeah. And in order to prime that tendon, you've got to isolate it. A bit like the way um, Dan Verun was talking about strengthening tendons in isolation. It's the same principle, but you're strengthening an injured tendon to essentially make it more resilient to stress in the future. Mm. Right, okay. Which is different to how you do normal A4, you know? Mm. Yeah, so it's like, in general you're trying to, you're going to scan in a situation where the 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 difference in the diagnosis will make a difference to how you treat basically that's right but what's interesting is when you scan and find these funny things like i wonder how many a4s have been um misdiagnosed or, or fds so that half crimp tendon has been misdiagnosed as an a4 and taken ages to get better you know mm. um because of this but, but when you scan it and realize that's the issue you develop clinical tests that don't involve scanning and you start playing with it. You go, okay, that, that little half crimp tendon actually doesn't like being stretched. Whereas if it was an A4 and you bent your finger back, it wouldn't make any difference really to that A4. Mm. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So yeah. It's... Bend that PIP joint back. The A4 is under no stress there because the end of your joint's not really working, but the tendon's under massive stretch load. Mm. So the scanning's kind of helped me figure out how to, diagnose it in the future without scanning right okay yeah 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 <laughs> totally um i guess there's also a slight fear that you because scans they're not easy to read like yes an, ultras an ultrasound is not clear uh you have to be pretty good to see what's going on because i yeah. i went to um i went to get my finger scanned that with tenosynovitis i was 99 sure it was tenosynovitis but i wanted yeah. to get it scanned because i'm human and i wanted to know what was going on yeah, um, yeah. and it was funny because on the scan to me it almost looked like bowstringing because of that gap the gap because the the inflammation underneath the tendon yeah it, it made it look like there was almost a bit of bowstringing going on because it, it added that gap so for me because yeah. i'm just not skilled enough to read a ultrasound with any yeah. degree of accuracy i would have totally misdiagnosed my own injury <laughs> yeah well when the fluid's in there sometimes it makes it easier to actually diagnose the problem so the other times you use ultrasound is when someone's had like a big ankle sprain um or if they've fallen on an outstretched hand or something like that and there's a lot of fluid in there fluid looks black because fluid doesn't reflect sound so the machine gets no feedback so that area, as far as the machine's concerned, there's nothing there. And mm. what it does is it puts a, a real highlight. So I would have said to you, if you could see black marks um, around the tendon, it may be an indication that there is a bit of lift there. 
But, you know, you've climbed for ages and you probably have got a, a few little niggles in the finger. But, um, but your yeah. decision was to scan so you could commit to a, a program knowing what yeah. was going on in there. And sometimes that's quite good for compliance. Yeah. You know, yeah. if you're that type of person, there are those who don't really want to know that. They just want to know what to do about it. And um, A lot of the time, if it was a tenosynovitis, I wouldn't scan it and I would just get them to continue to climb like you've ultimately ended doing ended up doing yeah i think it was that slight maybe just curious to see if my diagnosis was correct really just, yeah yeah just yeah. like curiosity just because I, I never normally because i get um overuse injuries quite commonly but um don't normally get them scanned so it's quite fun yeah to, to actually exactly. like you know what let's let's see if this one is what i think it is and, mm. and, it, and it was in the absence of a big pop, the chances are, much like a lot of the kind of chronic overload we saw in lockdown, it's healthy tissue that's become a bit irritated. And for those things, they, you just need to work around it, you know, mm. relax and work around it like you have. But the, like I say, those things that where you've fallen and something just doesn't feel right, you've got a sharp pain. It doesn't have modulation it like a muscle that stretches. It's just sharp. Those sort of things where they're atypical, that's when scanning is good. So I could find something like a scaphoid fracture. Um, that would obviously change your management. A lot of physios would would refer on. And my service is more than just a physio service, really. I suppose it's I get doctors and consultants spot, um, referring in to find out if a really important ligament snapped. So mm. there's, I don't know if you remember from your um, physio days, but there's a scaphoid ligament in your wrist. If that's snapped, You've got an unstable wrist and really rehab's not going to get that right. And ankles, if you've got high ankle sprain, so the ligament that connects your tib and fib at the bottom of your ankle, if that's snapped, that, that again, chances are that's going to need surgery and you don't want to waste your time spending months and months of painful rehab. Just go and see someone to secure that thing and then get on with, you know, rehabbing in a short space of time. So it's when you start thinking outside of the box and you scan a lot, you realize it is a useful tool you definitely can overplay it and that mm. can be yeah pretty detrimental as well so it's that balance yeah. um you said we, we briefly mentioned like uh slap tears um yeah on the on the uh when we were chatting yesterday yeah is that something that you would try and treat conservatively or would you definitely yeah okay definitely 100 percent. and i think this is the thing we see more and more you know Back in the day, surgeons used to um, treat meniscus tears. They'd go straight in and chop it. And 10 years later, they'd see that person coming in with more arthritis, accelerating themselves towards a total knee replacement. Um, for me, you know, a slap tear, it's not a problem with the, um, the ball. And I see that's the biggest mistake I see people managing slap tears with. Essentially, you see a lot of slap tears with pristine cuffs. So the rotator cuff's strong, looks really good, and there's no problems with that ball spinning in the socket. It's the socket itself that has the problem because the slap tear, mm. the cartilage issue, is embedded in the socket of your shoulder. And so it's the shoulder blade that needs rehabbing. Right. And often we see these guys that have done tons of cuff work. They've got ridiculously strong numbers. But they, the, the shoulder blade's not rotating well, which means when they put that really strong cuff into play and force the ball into the socket, it's irritating the, the labrum itself. And the only way you can change the position of the labrum is by 
getting better control in the shoulder blade itself. And that's the big defining difference between a slap tear and a cuff problem. That makes sense. Mm, right. Okay. And I think the management of those is generally not great. Um, but there's, I think in climbing, physios are probably getting better because they see them and they see peak climbers putting them in ridiculous positions. Um, the worst yeah. is a high gaston for a, for a slap tear, rotating your arm in, thumb down, and pulling with your arm overhead, which is really close to an O'Brien's test, which you'll remember from yes. physios. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that you is. You still remember a lot of it, don't you? It's great. Well, yeah, I, I, I guess, I guess, like, I've forgotten more of it than I remember, but um, just the fact that I'm constantly surrounded by climbers who are perpetually injured keeps me revising, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> so, um, if Aiden didn't know you're a physio, does that mean a lot of your climbing friends don't know you're a physio? I don't think I bring it up much because I was. I, I the problem is, if people know you're a physio, they will always ask you when they're injured. Yeah. And I now definitely am far enough removed that most of the time I wouldn't trust my advice. So like, I don't really want to have a go and, <laughs> you know, make things worse for people. Um, yeah. Because like, obviously I, I, I joked to you last night that a little bit of knowledge is a dangerous thing. And I think that's yeah. roughly where I'm at now in that I probably know enough to think I know what it is and that's, the most dangerous thing because I think I'll be wrong way yeah, too often yeah. to give useful yeah. advice and I'm petrified of giving really bad advice and also you know as as I'm sure you know the um being a physiotherapist is a protected title um mm. and after you've stopped practicing for two years then uh, it lapses so legally yeah. speaking I'm not a physiotherapist I'm just uh, someone with a physio degree and I think that's an important distinction to remember yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> a lot of physios current physios employ your tactics I've got a friend he says he's a baker when someone asks what he does they say oh what you bake he's bread that's it it's like a total end to the conversation <laughs> but i mean you must get it all the time people must because like yeah. even even talking to you now there's a part of me that's like oh tempted to ask you about my niggle you know like yeah it's, it's just it's, it's it's very hard not to when um yeah and and i've got friends who are um got other trades like one guy's a computer engineer and he said, if someone kept coming up to me asking me about my computer, their computers, or an accountant as well as the other one, I would just say, well, you, you know, I need to, you need to pay me for that. That's my yeah, job. Exactly. Whereas PCO <laughs> seems to kind of, I don't know. It, I made a decision a long time ago that I was never going to say that because mm. you can't be half in, half out. You can't do it sometimes. And then that person then comes to you and you give them the, you've got to pay me, you know, come and see me in clinic. You've yeah. got to have an ethos. And my ethos actually is when people come and ask me that, it is always an opportunity for me to see something slightly new, potentially learn something and be a, an open book. And if it's complicated, I'll, I'll say you need to come in and we need to do it properly. Mm. Um, but I think you've got to have like a position on it and be happy with that. And, and there's an opportunity always to learn if you keep, if you're an open book to those questions. But again, just just briefly going back to 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 your ultrasound and your scanning and things like hmm. I'm just wondering which other things would come up that you would think, OK, that's not something I'm going to that's that's going to be an onward to a surgeon sort of thing. I'm thinking like maybe what about like a labrum tear? Is that something you would try? So I keep all the labrum tears um, like slap tears all, all in the same category. Um, um, 
the, the one time labrums become a little squirrely is you can develop cysts in the back of the joint. So um, they're called paralabral cysts and they sit in this little notch called your spinoglenoid notch. And it's in this notch, the nerve which switches your rotator cuff sits. So like I said, you can get a pristine looking uh, tendon of your rotator cuff. But if you get a slap tear with a paralabral cyst, it'll switch that pristine cuff off. And all you need to do there is drain that cyst when you find it. And for people out there who go, you know, it doesn't change the management. Um, if you want to see the one of the kind of signs of that is you get atrophy of the actual rotator cuff without the pain. And so if that's happening, the chances are there is a paralabral cyst and you'd send them on to a consultant who would scan them, see it, put a needle in and suck it out. And it's really satisfying. The cyst goes away, <laughs> it starts working again. But you want to catch those ones early. You know, they're good to catch early before the muscles become weak. Mm. Um, but yeah, big instabilities in ligaments, scaphalunate ligaments, they're high ankle sprains. So if anyone listening to this has had an ankle sprain and it hurts above the ankle, just above the ankle, and they can't get their knee over their toes, and particularly the mechanism. So if they've landed with their foot planted and rotated their body rather than just rolled the ankle, if there's a body rotation involved, that could be a high ankle sprain and they go on to become chronic problems if you don't deal with them. So they get referred on as well. How are you at dealing with your own injuries? Ah, that's a good question. So um, I I always have to answer these things honestly. So, you know, same as the warm-up, I don't do the warm-up. I would recommend other people do. And I flirt with all my injuries to figure out where the, where the end lies there. I don't usually scan myself that often until they stop making sense. So, and that's, that's kind of how I work as a physio as well. Um, because if I scanned it first, I could see something that looked really nasty and I would not be able to then explore that all the things I could do and really rely on my instincts. Um, but when it stops making sense, it doesn't sound right on paper. I'll, 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 I'll slow down and respect it. Mm. But um, I'm like you, I, I think I've actually got a lot of you in me. Uh, the other day I was doing some silly comp problem with a high heel and I heard my hamstring tear. This was like seven days ago. Right. And, and I figured out that if my hip's not rotated out, I can still use my toe. So I can still toe down. And a lot of people who've had hamstring problems will kind of know that's a problem as well. So I got back on the board and started toeing down. And on the day I did my hamstring, I said, oh, that's it. I'm going to be off for four weeks. That's how long it's going to need to heal properly. But on day three, I'd managed to climb the board. I'm like, <laughs> already thinking about trying that same stupid comp problem a different way. <laughs> and that's the risk, isn't it? Like, you stop pushing it too hard. Yeah, I think that's so funny, though, is that it's like, even though, <laughs> even though you know, you should know better than anybody, yeah. you're just as fallible as Absolutely. <laughs> the rest of us. Yeah. <laughs> Total human nature. It's about when you're psyched for something, you don't think straight. Um, but that's 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 great. We've had we've added a bunch there. Um, was yeah, there, well, was, really good, actually. was yeah. there anything else you wanted to add? Not really. No, I just wanted to make a little bit on you know scanning and how it can be really useful when things are atypical and not making sense to help move people forwards and not and avoid them basically spending ages trying to rehab something that's not rehabable. Mm. Some things you find on scans do change the way you manage it. And the more you learn about this stuff, the, and the more I think about operating beyond what a physio is, um, to more of a triage service, the more I realize that actually scanning saves some people a lot of hassle 
uh, and wasted time and money. But um, the majority of those people do well with the old age old approach of just treating symptoms and moving away from the medical model. But don't rule that out because you've heard it on social media. Actually, sometimes getting out of your own way and questioning that statement can save that person you're looking after a lot of hassle. Yeah, no, I thought thanks, it was a good little chat. Thanks, thanks so much for giving us even, even more of your time. It's very I can't timely. believe my bladder <laughs> held up for three hours. That's the biggest <laughs> win for me is that my bladder held up. Oh, that was good because <laughs> I, I, I got a toilet break where you went to answer your Christmas door. Yeah, to the builders, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what Aiden smashed his sandwich, I think. It is, yeah, yeah. <laughs>